All right, we are live on YouTube, people. I have just returned from touring with Jordan Peterson. I went directly to Joe Rogan, and now we're gonna do a show. Joining me today is neuroscientist, best-selling author, and mysterious man of internet controversy, Sam Harris, welcome back to the Ruben Thank Report. Thank you. Thank you. How is that for an intro for you, mysterious man of internet? I, I guess it works as well as anything else yeah. in my bio. Yeah. You seem to be somebody that wants inner peace, and yet constantly involved in these endless. I, I do enough to screw that up. It seems for <laughs> for reasons that I can't figure out. But is yeah. that a scientific test for you, possibly? Well, you know, I've just. I, I don't think we've talked about this, but I've pulled back from social media to a big degree, and yeah. that. That is a variable that, I mean, I, obviously I, I'd heard that advertised to me as a problem, and yeah. I had thought about it in the abstract as a problem, and I know you've gone you know, off the grid for a month or something, but just, I mean, I, I've cut down, I, mean, I was never using Facebook as anything other than a, a publishing channel. I never got into comments on Facebook, but I got hooked by Twitter, as you know, and I'm probably spending five minutes a day on Twitter yeah. at most, and so it's, I'm just, it's just a surgical strike on Twitter, just put something out, see what's there, read a couple of articles, you know, just find links to articles that interest me. So I mean, it's still a way of getting news, but to not, to fundamentally not only not engage, but not even know what's going on on Twitter has been a total reset of my brain. I mean, it's, 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 it's been amazingly toxic in a way that I never appreciated. So. Yeah, so I think my audience knows my feelings on this, that it, yeah, it's endlessly toxic, Yet at some level, it's helped connect all of us. I mean, we originally connected through Twitter. These things kind of morph and change and have yeah. moments where they're much worse and then suddenly they're much better. They also you know, help start revolutions in the Middle East. So it's like not all evil, <clears throat> but are you afraid a little bit of getting disconnected? All together, yeah, like if you yeah. just that, you, that you'll miss some of the zeitgeist sort well, of. Well, I'm, I'm definitely missing stuff. Yeah, and, and I'm, uh, I'm still trying to use it strategically. So I'm trying to use it in precisely the way you just described, with it, trying to get connected with people. I reached out to somebody who's this woman, Dia Khan, who just did a, a documentary. I want to get her on the podcast. Yeah. I, I tweeted at her. Uh, I haven't spent enough time looking to see if she's even noticed. So it's like I'm not totally paying attention, but. The benefit has been just immense because I just realized there's a kind of it's a kind of hallucination machine where you, <laughs> you, you begin to think you need to pay attention to certain yeah. voices that in the real world you would never see, and they and they, I mean I'm agnostic as to whether or not these voices are in fact consequential, and that you could sort of lose sight of how your reputation's unraveling online and. You know, just start getting phone calls from friends saying, "Sorry, that's happening to you," you know, <laughs> which I think is, you know, that's happened to some people. But, yeah. um, you know, for in my experience, I, maybe there's some exception to this, but virtually all of my kind of substantial, controversial engagements on Twitter, where I've noticed somebody go after me, and then I've responded, and then I, you know, I've done a podcast in response, whatever, whatever the, the, uh, however that's propagated in my life. The net result has always been like, you're getting back to zero if you're lucky, yeah. right? It's like the whole thing is a confection of having been on social media in the first place, and you're lucky to get back to zero. And uh, I mean, the truth is someone like, I mean, we can name the, you know, the usual we suspects. Have, we but, don't even have to name but them None anymore. of these people exist in the real world. I know. Like, like I mean, they're not, it's, you know, I, I would never see them just reading the New York Times for the most part. Um, I certainly never see them in my life, and yeah. it's just, it's very strange to feel like because someone has said something about you on social media, 
or, or you know, lied about you or spread an article that was terrible about you, whatever it is, that you then have to f somehow engage. And, and people, you know, write like, you know, who was it? Um, well, most recently, Robert Wright just wrote this, you know, idiotic wired piece about me, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like there's, there's not a single sentence <laughs> in the piece that needs to be responded to. Yeah. And I get inundated with, by people who think, well, listen, you really got to respond to this. This is, this is, you know, interesting and substantial. And it's nothing of the kind. It's like it's his attempt at clickbait. It's his attempt to provoke a some kind of controversy between us on one of our podcasts. I mean, he reached out to me and said, I just wrote this about you. You know, I hope you'll come on my podcast right. or I'll come on yours to right. talk He's about it. He's fishing for yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's a completely disingenuous and insubstantial thing. And yet, paying attention, like, it, it is a kind of meditation. It's like, it's, you have to become what you meditate on. You, know, yeah. you become what you pay attention to. And so checking Twitter 30 times a day or whatever I was doing, just built a new mind for me, which I, you know, I, you know, I'm very happy to get rid of. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'll ever get totally off it because for the reasons you suggest, but I, I, I've cut it down literally by 95%. Yeah. So. so I saw the interview you did. Was that CBS News about a week or two ago? And you talked about how it's kind of making us all crazy. Oh, no, that was an Australian that was, was that Australia? Yeah, yeah that, was, that, was, that was ABC in Australia. Yeah, so. so I saw that, and you said something about how it's kind of making us all crazy. And it was making me think, to, to your point just now, mm -hmm. that it seems like we're almost living in two worlds at the same time right now. Like, if you walk around staring at that thing, like, I'm traveling a lot now, so mm -hmm. if I'm, like, at the airport, like, I'm looking at this thing, you almost get disconnected from the actual physical location. Oh, yeah, that you're you in. totally do. Yeah. You start ending up yeah. in some alternate world. And to me, that's a little bit sort of where we're gonna end up with, with AI, with all of these, they're all gonna kind of collide into one thing that we're gonna end up in the matrix or something like that. Yeah, well, and you can be buried on your phone, obviously, without being buried on social media. So, you know, I've, I've taken it off my phone, which is a, a, a huge yeah. uh, kind of gatekeeping function. But, uh, What do you yeah. think about how it changes our perception of time? Because that, that's actually where I was gonna start with you, because we just figured out, so the last time you were on the show was July of 2016, basically two, two years, years ago, yeah. which is crazy, and it sort of seems like yesterday to me, and yet it also seems like, a, like 18 lifetimes ago. And I think that maybe has something to do with social media changing the way we perceive time or something. Uh, well, I don't know, I don't think it's just social media, I think it's just, I mean, it's everything. Everything is conspiring to make time go faster. It's just, you're getting older. Uh, just you know, the, the 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 increase in novelty and just change. Just we have we're seeing changes in culture and technology that are clearly accelerating. So the the world is different over the course of more different over the course of a year than it's ever been. I think that's that's objectively true. Yeah. But also you're just getting older, so that every year is you know, th that much less a piece of your, the, the life you've lived. You know, if you're, if you're 40, you know, the next year is, is 140th of the time you've been around. Uh, and then, you know, it becomes 150th. And so it, it's subjectively shorter. And uh, yeah, I mean, a year for me is like four months long now. It just, yeah. just blasts by. So there are a couple things I want to hit on here. We'll do a little bit of politics, and, but I do want to talk about uh, consciousness, and I want to talk about uh, your upcoming talks with Peterson, and mm -hmm. obviously I've gotten to know his mind pretty yeah, do, well at this point. Do you have some inside information that I should have at this point? I might. I might be able yeah. to offer you a little something, and, okay. and I think maybe we can set the table for how, how many events are you doing with him? We're doing four. We have four 
you know, only four. We've spoken about others, but I think four is certainly enough to see whether we can we can do this. So the funny thing, it, is, I it, it might be three too many. <laughs> That's what I'm worried it, it might be four too many. You'll yeah. find out. But the funny thing is that I didn't know until I mentioned to him last night when we were in Atlanta. I said, "Oh, you know, I have Sam on tomorrow. Um, is there anything on your mind that I can bring up that'll sort of set the table for this whole thing?" Mm. I didn't realize that you guys have actually never met in person. No. Which, having uh, listened to uh, the two podcasts, which. Yeah. You know, I, you did on on computer or on Skype or whatever that that podcast thing you used. That's kind of crazy that you guys haven't actually sat there and just you know looked in his eyes and, and no. done this. Does that feel weird to you that you're going to do all this publicly in that way? No. Well, I've done a bunch of events with people I've never met. You know, like where it's a podcast guest or a, you know, someone I'm sharing the stage with for the first time, and uh, so I've actually I've I've. I know him better than several of the people I've recently done live events with. And, and I've spoken to him on the phone once, and we've done those two podcasts. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, it, it's it's obviously not optimal to be having these conversations. Uh, I, well, it selects for different things. I think there are people. I think it's. I think Terry Gross of Fresh Air will never do anything face to face. I think she does all of her interviews. In, 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 even if you're in Philadelphia. I could could be really? apologies well, to her if I'm getting this wrong. I think she just likes the sort of the purity of the, uh, pure audio, and it could, because the product is audio, there's no yeah. video component to it. And I understand that in the sense that <clears throat> if you're having like so, so if we were just doing an audio podcast now, I mean now as a, just a pure audio podcaster, I'm sensitive to this. You and I are having an experience now. We're looking at each other. We have various cues. We we know we have a sense of how the conversation's going. If, and which which can be misleading because if the final product is just audio, yeah. you can think there's stuff coming through which isn't coming through. And so when you don't have any of those any of that information and you just got the other person's voice on the line, you have a very clear sense of what you're getting. And if you're not getting what you want to be getting, then you you, you modify what you're doing in some on some level. So yeah, um, so yeah, it's it, I mean it's working for me, but I think it's as far as establishing. Rapport with someone—it's it's definitely not ideal. So, and it, we, we've we've had moments where we we could have used more rapport, probably. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's shelve the rest of Peterson till yeah. after. What what do you make yeah. of this whole thing? That somehow the conversations that we've all been having, often completely independently of each other, right? I mean, you haven't been here for for two years, hmm. have suddenly become like the zeitgeist thing. Like you know, Barry Weiss wrote this intellectual dark web article. People think we have a card and there's a clubhouse and the mm. whole thing. As far if there is, I haven't been invited. Right. Uh, yeah. But that that whatever it is, we're all doing the conversations you're having and I'm having and Rogan's having and this whole crew of people seem to be doing something that was very needed at some level or another. Yeah. Well, I, I think we uh, there's certainly a diversity of opinion within this yeah. group or pseudo group about what's going on here. I mean, we, we, as you know, we have not had a meeting where we've agreed that, yeah. you know, what about what this is. Yeah. But if uh, anything, we've had a qu- half a meeting where we disagreed on it, yeah. really, and it was yeah. barely that. Yeah. Yeah. And and did you see Eric Weinstein's video about just what what yeah. this was? And that I mean, it's like so. A hundred percent of what he said on that video was never anything that he said to me or that you know. It's like this, you know. This is how he coined the phrase in his own mind. Yeah. Then, well, I, I had just brought him up on stage at, in Tempe at the Improv the night before, right. and I think he was high on comedy and just like I'm going to talk to people. Now. Right. Right. And so I, mean, I found everything he said very interesting. Yeah. And as you know, I, I love Eric. He's fantastic. But uh, he, he coined the phrase yeah. on my podcast, 
I think on an earlier podcast, but then it was reiterated in this live event we did with Ben Shapiro. Right, you and, named the, and then the podcast. I, I named that, that, was what that did it, I podcast. Think. Yeah. And I, I, no exaggeration, I thought for like 15 seconds about what I was going to title <laughs> the podcast. It was just, it was just, you know. So it it was it was has always been tongue in cheek and um, a, a fairly superficial analogy for me. And, and but it, but an interesting one in the sense that. There is a, the analogy to the dark web is appropriate in that, insofar as there's this area where a lot is going on that the mainstream media, in this case, is basically unaware of. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, there's many people in the mainstream media and people who consume the mainstream media where they're also listening to to my podcast or Rogan's or, or watching you. Uh, so they, you know, many people know we exist, but people. Uh, are, have been very slow to appreciate just how big the audience is. I mean, Rogan's audience is just it's enormous. Absurd, you know, yeah. And, and yeah. You know, our audiences are absurd compared to what's happening on, on you know, CNN, for instance. But, um, you know, I mean, Rogan's audience is like, it's like every episode is the finale of the Game of Thrones, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just, it's completely insane. No one knows this, yeah. right? Like he, I mean, he occasionally brags about how big his audience is, but it's, my sense is that the people at the New York Times aren't aware, uh, or people even at CNN aren't aware that they're in competition with, I mean, just to take CNN as the, the most relevant comp, yeah. if you get invited to, to go on Anderson Cooper's show tonight and give an interview, you're going to get six minutes, you know, the best case, 12 minutes to try to make sense and try to not embarrass yourself within a, within a frame yeah. that is really rigid. It's not, I mean, it's the, it, time pressure alone modifies just, just what kind of conversation yeah. you can have there. And in prime time, you're going to go out to a million people at best with Anderson Cooper. Uh, and now, how many are actually watching the television? I mean, the television's on in all sorts of right. locations that nobody's even watching. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I count my audience at something like a million people. I mean, it's hard, as you know, to get great podcast metrics. But Joe's is probably ten times that per episode, if if not more. So I mean, you're talking. So and and in those cases, you're talking about two and three hour conversations that people are actually listening to. And forget about what it's like to be the host on a show like that. The the opportunity for someone else to come on and have a conversation and and make sense and correct themselves and go through the whole warp and woof of of, of, a, of a, a genuine conversation that isn't unnaturally bounded by a time limit. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I noticed the difference between a, a, an hour-long radio conversation that gets ported to, po- to podcast where everyone just knew clearly that they had to bring this in in an hour. Right? Yeah. Like, even that defines the conversation. And so uh, I think people are very slow to wake up to how those two things, like a, a big audience with an unlimited time uh, for, for a conversation changes, uh, and also just different, you know, incentives with respect to funding of these things, because you know, there's no one, no one's going to fire Joe Rogan. Yeah, Sam Harris uh, ain't yeah. going to fire Sam Harris? Yeah, no, not, uh, well, well I, I, I fired my, uh, my Twitter director. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, and so th- that, that part of the analogy is interesting because it's allowing for a very different style of airing ideas, and, and, the substance is changing, you know. So, and I think people value it. I mean, you 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 know when you're listening to one of our podcasts that you're getting a a much less paranoid, much less circumspect, much more 
uh, open-ended ser- search for sanity and 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 you know a kind of convergence between you know it's in some cases radically differing opinions. Yeah. Uh, than you're I, getting I, I, in other media. I so. like that open-ended search for sanity because I think we've all tried to figure out what are the commonalities here because right we've got I mean you and Ben basically disagree on every not only pretty much every political position, not, not everyone, but probably mm. 90% of the political stuff, you and Ben Shapiro, uh, but of course mm. also the existential stuff and, and religion and all that stuff. And yet, you guys are basically allies in that you're defending the ability to have that disagreement. That seems to me to be the thing that we're all doing. Like we, yeah. we, we respect our audiences, but more than that, we're respecting the ability for people to sit here and disagree about things. And we have a couple of political disagreements that I want to get into a little bit, mm. but to me those disagreements aren't even that important as long as we're defending the ability to think and question. And, and I think that's what we've all sort of done, even though we all came at it from very different places. Yeah, and I, I th- the master variable for me is, is a good faith disagreement. So it's like, it's yeah. where, like I'm actually concerned to get your position right. Yeah. And some of this does, I think, boil down to not having a time limit, too. It's like, I can take the time. It doesn't matter if, like, you know, with Peterson and I, we can burn the first hour misunderstanding one another, right? You know, or even longer, maybe the first whole podcast, and then we do another podcast. So it's, um, it's, whereas in any other format, you just, you, you don't have the time to wonder whether or not you're wrong about what you think the other person just said. And then you add to that the, the, the kind of the cynical point scoring that is just politically motivated, uh, that, that you know, is, is omnipresent in, in the usual context. It'll, it, it, you could just have people who are actually not having a conversation. It's just, I, I'm gonna say the thing that I think is gonna make you look bad in the 45 seconds we have left. Yeah. That's the situation you're virtually always in on television and, and people feel it and it's just like, no wonder we're not making progress having conversations about hard topics. Yeah, well I think we're making progress. No, and we as a, we as a species, as a, yeah. as a species yeah. not doing so well. The Rubin Report is brought to you by our friends over at Dollar Shave Club. If you ever shower or comb your hair or brush your teeth, and if you don't, please reconsider, I've got news for you. Dollar Shave Club has a wide variety of items to help you stay squeaky clean. Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club you've been hearing so much about delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. That's right, just because I'm rocking a beard doesn't mean I'm not a dedicated Dollar Shave Club fan. There's truly something for everyone, ladies and gentlemen, alike. They offer all the bathroom essentials you need, like shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, and even that infamous wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. I'm not afraid to admit that my favorite product right now is the Amber and Lavender Calming Body Cleanser. It smells fantastic and relaxes my stiff, plain muscles from all this travel. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget and you'll feel the difference. Best of all, shipping is included with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Set. It comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world famous Shave Butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at Dollar dollarshaveclub.com slash Ruben. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Ruben. 
The Rubin Report is brought to you by Simply Safe. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about home alarm companies putting home security in the top 10% of the most complained about industries. But you need to protect your family, your home, and your business. Luckily, Simply Safe is changing home security for the better. Simply Safe has no contracts or hidden fees like some of the other guys. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and clauses hidden in the fine print. They're truly a company that treats you right, a company that that relies on good service and a great product to earn your business shouldn't be a rarity, but Simply Safe goes above and beyond. I've known Simply Safe for years. They're a great company with great, affordable, and effective security system that's easy to set up and to operate. It's why they've gotten an A plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for a whopping 10 years running. Plus, with over 40,000 five star reviews online, you can trust their product. Simply Safe is what home security should be. You're getting the best protection, period. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash Ruben to let them know we sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash Ruben to protect your home and family with an A plus home security system. One more time, that's simplysafe.com slash Ruben. Can, that reminds me, can you just quickly um, recap? You mentioned something on your podcast a couple weeks ago about how when, when Shapiro and Jordan were here, that, uh, that Jordan sort of misrepresented uh, a position, your position sort of on truth, and that Ben then subsequently on Twitter misrepresented something, you contacted both of them and cleaned it all up and everyone was good to go. Can you just recap that real quick? Because I think yeah, that sort yeah. of also gets to the heart of this. That yes, they, they both kind of admitted, yeah, we one thing was half joke and whatever, we screwed up something, but that we all cleaned it up, you guys all cleaned it up and we're good. And I think it's yeah, just important yeah. to, to reiterate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a point. I, I made that point on my podcast to reiterate the difference between the kinds of bad faith arguments I'm getting predominantly from the left and what I'm getting from the right. And I mean, it was, it was actually provoked by a question on an AMA I got, which actually was, it was probably your hate mail. You know, I'm getting like, some, of, some of your hate mail. <laughs> Is right? it weird that I forward that yeah, to you? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, uh, thank yeah, you, yeah, I, I'm getting way. enough. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten some of mine in the past. But someone was saying, like, why are you hanging out with all these right-wing people? Yeah. And you, you seem to be able to have a, a, a congenial conversation with right-wingers, like, and then the people on the list of right-wingers were you and Rogan and, and, the, and more plausibly, uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, Jordan Peterson. And Gay married pro-choice against the death penalty yeah. for reforming the prison system, blah, blah, blah. Pro right, yeah. and Ro Rogan's, yeah. Rogan's conservative bona fides Rogan's are don't, don't go much further than that as yeah. well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, he hunts. That's that's what damns him, I guess. <laughs> uh, but so uh, you know, why can't you have the same kind of good faith meeting of the minds with someone on the left, someone like Ezra Klein or you know any of your other antagonists on the left, mm -hmm. Glenn Greenwald or Chris Hedges? And the difference has been, in my experience, is that on the left, I am virtually always getting. I mean, just uh, like ninety percent of the time, at least. I'm getting a, an argument that I perceive to be in bad faith, where it's just that you're, the effort is to slime you with a view you don't hold, or take the worst conceivable interpretation of the view you hold, and hold you to that. Like, I saw this thing, you, I heard this thing you said, I can interpret it to make you look like a fascist maniac, so, so now the burden is on you mm -hmm. for forever to prove you're not a fascist maniac. Right? Yeah. Wait, let uh, me pause you there for a second. Is there any chance that you think these, forget the specifics of the people, but is there mm -hmm. any chance you think that these people are acting <clears throat> co like consciously good 
You know what I mean? Like that they're it, that it, they really are just so deeply misunderstanding that this isn't yeah. an intention of evil. It, in some, I mean, I, I we could sort of do the postmortem on some of these, but some I think are genuinely confused. Some yeah. I think are, are truly sinister in in their level of dishonesty. Yeah, so, I mean, personally, I think it's more of the latter. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I mean, someone like Jenk Yuger, I think he's he knows what he's doing, and he's yeah, he's uh, he knows he's misleading his audience, and he you know it's just pure politics. Uh, and I would, you know, it's many people I could name or fall into that bin. I, I would agree with you. But uh, so, and then, then the thing that, that is, is totally toxic is, is when it's absolutely clear that someone has misrepresented your view, right? So like when Glenn Greenwald forwards to now you know, millions of people a segment of my podcast that has been re-edited by some tr- Twitter troll mm. to make me s- seem to be saying the opposite of what I'm saying. In yeah. fact, in, in context, he, he'll never correct that error. He'll, I mean, he'll never apologize, whereas I you know, will, will apologize instantly if I've misrepresented him. Um, the one time I did that. You, you did uh, it. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. actually did do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, there's just it's asymmetric warfare. And so the point I made about Peterson and Shapiro there is that so they both came on your show and in one way or another, totally misrepresented my views. I mean, so, so Peterson, quite uh, you know, comically in, in my world, said, you know, the, the thing about Sam Harris is that he doesn't understand that consciousness is mysterious. He doesn't, he doesn't value consciousness. He went on this whole tirade about my not getting just how mysterious and profound and, and um, uh, interesting consciousness is, whereas anyone who knows my stuff knows that that's like, the absolute center of the center of the bullseye for me, yeah. you know, ethically and intellectually, uh, both as, you know, in, in terms of neuroscience, the philosophy of mind, moral philosophy. I mean, that's just, you know, I, I say things like consciousness is the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion, right? I mean, we could be in a simulation. We could be brains in vats. We could be confused about everything. The one thing we can't be confused about is that, you know, consciousness is is our first, you know, condition in each instant. Um, so... So I just emailed him and I said, like, dude, you've got me completely wrong on consciousness. So you, yeah. you, you have to stop saying what you just said on Ruben's podcast because uh, it makes no sense. And rather than, and this again, if, if I were going out to someone on the left, you know, the Ezra Kleins, the, the Rez Aslans, the Jenks, the Chris Hedges, the Glenn Greenwalds, um, I like I how I was giving you the out yeah, yeah. not to name people. Yeah, no, but, but I mean, I've been down this path <laughs> yeah. so many times with these guys. I mean, yeah. so people think this all plays out in public. It sometimes plays out in private. With every one of these guys, there's been a private communication, which is like, listen, this is objectively mistaken, right? Yeah. Um, never have gotten an apology or a correction about anything, mm-hmm. right? What you get is basically, fuck you. This is what you really think, mm-hmm. right? You know, you you know, and. Um, but with Jordan, it was like, sorry, I guess I have to read your book so I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I think that's verbatim. Yeah. You know? And by the um, way, he has now. He yeah. told me, he told well, me last yeah. night. So he's, re- he's read all your will, books now. We'll so see. He's, he's I, ready. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure he's uh, still confused about something yeah. in those books, but we'll, <laughs> we'll work that out on yeah. stage. But, um, and the same with Ben. Ben was saying something about... Um, I think it, I was, think it was, was free will. It was the joke, right? Was right. It was the joke about the kid. Oh, okay. Yeah, Is that yeah, what it was, I think? Yeah, yeah. So I, I had, at our event, we got a, a question from the audience which, uh, where someone asked, well, so if free will is an illusion, you know, what should I tell my kids about free will? Like, do you lie to your kids or do you? 
Uh, and I, I made a, I, I joke, I said lie to them, right? Uh, which, uh, given the fact that I've written a book about <laughs> lying, and, and my, I've taken a very public position that basically you never lie, you don't even tell white lies, but lying is on the continuum of violence, and you just lie in, in, in real extremis. Uh, <clears throat> and it got uh, a big laugh, by the it way. Got, it got everyone, a laugh. I was like, there. Everyone yeah, in the room recognized Everyone knew that I, my audience knew I was joking, but right. Ben didn't know I was joking, yeah. right? So, Ben left and did some subsequent interviews saying, well, you know, Sam Harris's remedy for this is that you just, you know, he thinks free will is an illusion, but you, know, you should lie to your kids about it, right? So I said, Ben, that, that was a joke. And, you know, he, is, I mean, if he, he certainly suggested in his email, I haven't seen him since, but it, was, it seemed like he was going to stop doing that. Yeah. Whereas, um, again, this, what I would absolutely expect, I mean, like, bet your life on expect to get from any of these other antagonists is... Sorry, you said lie, right? Like this is, right. I, I have the text right here. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that, right? And this is, this is happening across the board on, on far more substantial things, like, you know, whether someone's a racist, whether it's like you, if it's possible to parse your tweet or your statement or your bad joke as you're now a Nazi, yeah. right? That's what people are going to do to you until the end of time. And it's just, there's, there's no, I mean, I've, I had been living under the illusion that it's possible to play your game so imp impeccably so as to close the door, the door of that ever happening. Like, mm -hmm. like, that's like if I'm just going to, if I just spoke clearly enough, if I just responded to enough of this crap, right, this would stop happening. I mean, I never thought that I'm consciously because that, it sounds ridiculous when I say it. But, but like that was a, that was tacitly presumed in how I was spending my time and energy trying yeah. to close the door to this stuff. And now, I, now I basically feel like there's almost nothing worth responding to in that. Yeah. Area. So when you look back to the time that you either thought that consciously or not, does that just seem like naivete, or it just seems like just that the world seriously shifted partly because of social media, where maybe maybe 15 years ago, as someone that <clears throat> you know, staked out some unpopular positions right. or politically incorrect positions, that you could do it, you could clean it up in a way that you'd be basically insulated. But now, just because of the craziness of social media, it just doesn't I, exist. So yeah, I think it's largely it. social media. Yeah. I think it's just, it, it, I mean, there's, there's never a comment thread that will be clean for you, no matter what you do or say. It's like, so if, if, you, if your measure of a controversy worth responding to or stuff that wasn't clear enough because someone's still confused, is what you see in a comment thread or what you see in, you know, in your at mentions on Twitter, you'll never be out of hell. So, yeah, so it, it was a, I, I could have just realized this years before I did, but it was, it was a kind of, you know, the, the frog in the boiling water was, <laughs> right, didn't, right. didn't notice it was getting hot, you know, as you gradually heated it up. So yeah. uh, I was that frog and I've since jumped out. So, so what do you make then of that basic premise that you've laid out there, that for some reason, whatever is happening on the left, broadly speaking, is incapable of having honest conversations. I mean, do you at this point, one of the things when I do the Peterson event, I and I do a little thing mm. about the IDW and just this crew of people, and I, I say something about how we have a truly diverse group because we've got Sam Harris on the left and, and Ben Shapiro on the right, and then I throw in a couple of Kanye jokes and mm. some other stuff. But in, so in my mind, I guess you're still part of that, and I know the labels are all changing and that whole thing. But what do you make of what's happening on the left, and do you still consider yourself part of that thing that you're obviously really struggling with at, at some level? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm basically, despite 
that I've said many things about politics over the years. I'm basically apolitical. Right. I mean, yeah. I think politics is the most boring thing <laughs> in the universe, right? Yeah. And and I, I've said this before. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, it's strange. People actually say this is a good thing. I, I mean, I think you've said this is a good thing. I think this is a, a terrible thing. The fact that we're talking about politics so much is a sign of something bad. Not, oh, no, not, I think it's terrible. I just tweeted that the other day. I think it's terrible. Okay, so, yeah, that's why I want small government, so that it can't affect us that much. Okay, but I thought you, yeah. th- I thought, you thought that the rise of Trump led to this level, new level of engagement with all these issues, and that would be a good thing. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad that we have an uninformed electorate and that people are disengaged. I mean, yeah. But uh, the, so you obviously you want 100% of the people in the country to know, you know, how government works. I mean, that would be great. But yeah. uh, the fact that politics is so important to people, the fact that their identity is wrapped up in it, the fact that, that you just can't get away from it, that's a sign of real dysfunction. That's mm-hmm. a sign of things not working. And so, uh, you know, we, in my world, I mean, you know, I got sucked into that, and I've said as much as, you know, more or less everything I have to say on, on you know, certain, those issues. I mean, the issues aren't changing fast enough for me to have to keep touching it. You right. Know? I mean, Trump isn't that different than he was six months ago, so I don't have to keep talking about him. But um, I, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I find it incredibly boring and repetitive and not, it, it doesn't repay attention. You know, like like the, the, the noises you make seem ineffectual, and... There's not new in, new knowledge coming your way based on those uses of attention. So it's yeah. Now I'm spending less time on it, both just consuming it and putting stuff out there about it. Yeah, where, where do you think that leads us, just as a society? Like it does strike me as a sickness. This you know, as a sort of societal sickness that everything mm-hmm. has become political all the time. So I, I do the the first part of what you said there. I do think is good. The the, the Trump thing that came in and broke everything up. The idea that so many people are reevaluating what they think. Hmm. That's what I would say is good. The fact that everything now has become political and sports is absurdly political now and every right. TV show and movie and everything, just nonstop endless. That, I think, is dangerous because it's just putting up barriers everywhere. Yeah. How do we, yeah. how do we sort of bring some of that back? Well, I just think, again, we have to resist the slide into politicizing everything. So I, th- I think it's the, the people who are not taken in by the, I, I mean, it's, it's disconcerting how many of the examples that come readily to mind are on one side of the political spectrum. I mean, it's like as someone who's on the left yeah. with respect to almost every variable that can define left but, and So that's right. what I'm trying to figure yeah, out it's, here. It's like, so much of it is, is the left, but the, the, the truth is the left is so dominant in journalism and entertainment that, I mean, and it's kind of high culture, academia as well. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like if, you're gonna, if you're gonna talk about the sources of knowledge and the sources of information that have you know, heretofore been considered valid, uh, and then the sources of entertainment, um, your, you know, I mean, I don't know how sports breaks, but you know, sports, uh, maybe, um, maybe sport by sport, it, it might change, but mm-hmm. um, you're talking about a disp- disproportionate influence from the left, and that's how, that's undoubtedly a source of the, the cluelessness that the left had about w- you know what was going on in the country and the, and the prospects of uh, Trump winning the election. You know, I think that was um, the, there's just a, the naturally an echo chamber effect. But so I think for most people that are watching this, they're probably agreeing with you, right? Mm-hmm. Most of my audience is going to agree with that diagnosis. Do you think the powers that be, whether it's in the media world or the political establishment or 
the whatever's happening at the universities, are they getting the message yet? Do you have any hope that they're actually realizing how toxic this thing has become? Well, they're, they're getting the message that there's a problem, but my concern is that the left seems totally capable of just taking a pendulum swing in the other direction into leftist identity politics. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think, you know, it's hard to know how fully the left has been captured by that, but uh, it's, I mean, the reaction to Trump, I mean, you know, Trump and the left are now mirror images of it's one another. Made in hell. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, the answer to Trump can't be, and to just take it out of, you know, off Trump for a second, just the answer to the excesses of, uh, identity politics and populism and unreason on the right, you know, can't be amplifying all of that on the left. I just think that's it. I think it's. I think it will be just, in fact, a losing strategy going forward. And it's just, it's just, it, it is more of a. I mean, it's a more. It's more of a renunciation of everything that makes the left good yeah. than it is on the right. So, like, if you go far enough right, you're not expecting to meet kind of rational, open-ended conversation <laughs> about the nature of reality, right? right? You're expecting to meet, you know, neo-Nazis and the KKK, and I mean, that's what you, in fact, meet, right? Uh, but my problem is I'm, I'm meeting the, the, the same level of demagoguery and dishonesty and cynicism and just mere gamesmanship on the left in a much, much closer to to where, you know, we all are living. Like, so it's like just in interacting with a reporter from, you know, Salon or, or Vox, right? Like, like, like who's, who's there? I'm meeting someone who essentially has the intellectual and moral integrity of the guy in the white hood, mm -hmm. you know, over on the right. And that asymmetry is, uh, is just totally alarming to me. Yeah, so I know, so we'll just do a couple more minutes on politics and then we'll yeah. shift to some stuff. So one of the places where obviously we're not completely lined up is sort of the, the Trump stuff and the reaction to all of this. I think as human beings, I don't think it <clears throat> particularly matters to either one of us what those differences might be, but I know our audiences have a little bit of a different feeling on that perhaps. Huh. Um, so my general feeling, again, I did not vote for Trump. I voted for Gary Johnson. I would have preferred having a president who I think really understands three branches of government and the history of America and all mm -hmm. of those simple things. And that would have been nice in the debates if anyone would have said to him, do you know what the difference between the legislative and executive and judicial branches are? And I think that maybe could have caused an implosion right. of the whole thing and all that. But that being said, I think the wrecking ball that he put through the machine that was dumbing us all down, that was creating this identity politics situation and everything else that had been so corroded into the system, I think where we're at now, I'm quite hopeful. I actually sense a lot of fertility for ideas. I think the fact mm. that this whole crew of people have, has come together, or whether we're independent or together, whatever you want to call it, the fact that there's such interest in all of this, uh, I think is, is all good, and I see that as sort of a direct result of Trump just shaking up the system. That being said, does he lie yeah. all the time? Absolutely. Do I think they all lie all the time? Yeah. Did Obama lie about if you like your health doctor, you can keep it? Yeah, the Syria red line, blah, blah, blah. It's just Trump does a different series of lies and does them much more blatantly. Well, it's, so, it's worse, so it's I worse than that. I always view them as a necessary yeah. evil, yeah. I, I guess. I can't give you that last thing on, on the scale of the yeah. line because I think it's, 
it's orders of magnitude worse. I mean, like, not even just one order of magnitude worse. It's like a hundredfold worse with Trump. So, all right, yeah. so if you take those two, though, so if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Obamacare, obviously, was his biggest right. uh, public policy, domestic public policy thing. Yeah. So that's a pretty big lie, and they pretty much admitted that he knew he yeah, was yeah. saying it because he well, wanted I, to I'm, pass uh, it. Yeah, I mean, whether, whether that was a lie or not, or whether he just reneged on a promise, or I mean, like the red line, I don't really yeah. view as a lie. I, I just view that as a failure of nerve. Yeah. It's like he drew a red line that he probably shouldn't have drawn because he, he, he if he had thought about it, he knew he wasn't gonna go to war over it. Right. Um, and then he made us look weak because he didn't, you know, he, he the, the line was crossed and we didn't respond. Um, I think that was, but it's just, we're, we were living in a world where you would have a whole news cycle over Obama wearing a tan suit, right? <laughs> right? And now we're living in a world where a porn star can say, listen, you know, he's lying about this and I have evidence. <clears throat> and it's like, it, it's so, it, it's eclipsed by the next lie he tells by the end of the, that news cycle, right? So it, it's just, um, I mean, you, I mean it, it's literally true to say that Obama's presidency would have been completely derailed by any one of maybe a hundred things you could say Donald Trump has said or done in the last year. I mean, not even. I mean, way beyond ten things. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't list them now. But I mean, almost anything he does on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, had you seen Obama do it in that you know period of the earth that uh, right. we can so all can you dimly recollect. that you think would have really derailed an Obama presidency cuz to me it was like the media was so far up his butt they he could have pretty much gotten away with anything. Well, I, so I get what you're saying that yeah, they focused on tan suits and and silly nonsense, but to me I see that as almost like it's because you guys weren't doing your job. You should have been digging a little bit more or whatever. Well, no, but I, I think it's actually true to say that Obama was basically uh, you know as honest as a politician can be and still be a politician. I mean, I think, I'm sure he lied about things, right? <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's no story on Obama being just this depraved person behind closed doors who get, who's, a, who's a con artist, who gets away with everything that, that he can get away with, uh, who's trailing a long list of ca you know, business and interpersonal casualties, who will tell you if you put them on camera or you get, get them privately that he's the worst person they've ever met, right? That's who's president now. Right, it's just it's a completely different mm -hmm. personality, um, and uh, I think that I think so. Whatever happens, let's say good. Th let, let's say we're living in a universe where having a a uniquely narcissistic, selfish, shallow personality mm -hmm. in uh, this position of power works out well. Let's just say that, I mean, so let's just to take your wrecking ball theory, he's kind of swung through here, yeah. he's disrupted everything. You know, I do view him, as I've said before, as a kind of evil Chauncey Gardner character. I don't mm -hmm. view him as this sort of master, I think Scott Adams is completely out to lunch on this. I don't <laughs> think he's this genius manipulator. I mean, he's got, he's got some talents, obviously, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think- But you think it's much less calculated. Much than, less calculated. Than certainly than yeah. Scott. I don't think yeah. him contradicting himself two sentences later Right when he says, you know, this is an amazing letter. You'd all like to read this letter, and then yeah, he says two sentences later, "I haven't read the letter." Yeah, that's not calculated. He's just not doesn't have the cog. He can't take the cognitive overhead to even figure out what you know what was logically implied by the last thing he said. Right. So he's not. The, the truth is, he's not. He lies all the time, but worse than lying. And this is the the great distinction that the philosopher Harry Frankfurt made in his book on bullshit. Worse than lying 
is that he's bullshitting all the time. And the difference between lying and bullshitting is that if I'm going to lie to you, I'm paying attention to what I know, I know what is true, I know you know what is true, and I'm trying to insert a lie into the space provided in a way that you won't notice, right? Like I'm, I'm having to keep track of reality mm -hmm. in order to lie to you successfully. I understand your logical ep expectations. I understand that if I tell you that, you know, I was an hour late here because the traffic was so bad, I can't say in the next sentence, <laughs> oh, I left an hour late from my house, right? right. So, like, so, um, uh, so, the bullshitter isn't doing any of that. The bullshitter is just talking, right? And therefore has renounced the reality testing he has to do to lie successfully. And he's just he he, he has the burden is not on him to make any sense at all in the end. And um, that, for, to an amazing degree, not entirely. I think he does actually lie strategically sometimes. But to an amazing degree, and this is what I think is so harmful about his presidency, whatever happens with North Korea or anything else that we might you know, care about, mm -hmm. to an amazing degree, he has revealed that half of our society will accept somebody who is just bullshitting all the time about things great and small. I mean, it doesn't matter how important or how inconsequential porn stars, you know, what, you know, what just happened with the G7, you know, what was said behind closed doors, what he's going to say to, to a, a, some maniac with, with nukes. Um, there's just a, a, we've completely forsaken any expectation of a reality-based conversation, and many people seem to revel in it. Many mm -hmm. people seem to think this is just, this is just good fun. This is like this is it's, you know, and it's, it's a bit of the wrecking ball theory yeah. gone to some nihilistic extreme, where it's just let's just you know, let's just burn it all down. You know, yeah. like like there's just nothing you know, there, there's nothing. There was nothing wor worth maintaining about our institutions, about our norms, about our traditions, about you know the expectations of our of our of other countries that are our allies. You know, or like who cares if if all of our traditional allies don't know what to think about the president because he said one thing five minutes ago and he says the opposite thing now and they're all left with their jaws on the floor, right? That's just comedy for, what, 40% of America. Um, I think there's a real consequence to that because, I, the, because what, what, what Trump has revealed is that there's a space for a truly terrible calculating person, you know, like the, 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 the sinister person with a real ideology, not right. just so, so you think yeah. someone potentially worse than him. Oh really. yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we've just we've proven to ourselves that literally anyone who who can connect certain dots. I mean, who anyone who can connect the dots of you know, I'm not even sure what these dots are, but I mean, obviously Trump connected some of them. You know, fame and and a certain kind of charisma. Um, you know, the, the a, a kind of populist, an ability to 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 strike the populist note in a way that's compelling. Someone who's could be way worse and way smarter and, and have a, a, a very different agenda um, uh, can become president. And I think that's, you know, I mean, it's good, perhaps it's good to know that, but it's just, I think we now know that about ourselves. Yeah, is this then the weird, so I think you know that I'm certainly not a, a nihilist and I'm definitely not somebody that wanted to burn the whole thing down, but, mm -hmm. I, but I do, view this reckoning as basically good as long as this per this other person doesn't magically appear out of it. And I also sense that 
that the time of craziness that we're in right now and this endless mm -hmm. inability to, to have these honest conversations, and I, and I agree with you on his basic management of truth or whatever you, whatever you want, management of truth right. is an interesting phrase, yeah. but whatever that yeah. is, that I sense there is going to be a rebound towards sanity that at some point you can't always have the wrecking ball, always have the guy that's flipping everything over and destroying it, and that if our institutions are strong enough, and if there's enough sane people out mm. there, and enough people that are listening to thoughtful conversations, and I, I think we both agree there's a lot of people growing in that regard, that the next version of whatever happens at an election is going to come from something much saner. Yeah, I, I, even, don't, I don't even see the evidence Even saner from before we, where we were before because that's where yeah. we were just getting a lot of bullshit from the media and from everything else that we might actually get a rebound into sanity. So you're well, not as hopeful. I, well, no, because I, what I see is the, the Republican Party has been destroyed, right? The Republican Party has become Trump's party. It's just this populist pandering. Uh, I mean, they're just all uh, trying to figure out what to do in his wake, but nobody, I mean, there's, there, there's no coherent platform anymore there. And as we've said, the left has swung into this uh, insane, just just victimology echo ch chamber of identity politics, where everyone's a racist. Yeah. Right. So, um, See, I, that, I, I guess maybe that's sort of the root of where our little disconnect is on this, because I fear that much more. I think that that thing that's happening on the left, this identity politics thing, I think that's the thing that could actually truly upend the entire American experiment. The idea that we would end up looking at each other only on these immutable characteristics and hiring each other only on these things and having quotas and ripping apart the, the good pieces of multiculturalism that we've done here better than anybody and, and the melting pot that we've done better, mm. that I, it will cause us to all be horrifically suspicious of each other and, and angry at each other really for no reason other than the way we look. And I'm not discounting anything you're saying about what's happening on the right, although I do see a streak of libertarianism on the right that I really like. Mm. I think there actually has been a rebirth. You know, a guy like Shapiro is obviously not a real Trump guy at heart, and he's arguing a lot of libertarian stuff that I like. I mean, maybe you yeah. don't like it as much, no, but no, no, I, I, I think yeah. it's a decent place to, to be arguing from. But I guess maybe that is where our, our little disconnect is on that. That I, The thing on the left I view as much scarier. I, I think it's a much more of an immediate threat. And I say that knowing full well that Trump has the nuclear codes. So maybe, yeah. that's, a, maybe that's a little... Yeah, I, I, mean, I think they're both enormous problems. I, I don't know which, I mean, you know, the Trump thing could seem fine until something horrific happens, right? So it's like, and you know, it, it's just, it, it is in fact hard to know what's happening and what risks we're running. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the economy seems to be doing good by what metric? By the, the stock market hasn't imploded, right? The, so, but only- it's low, consumer confidence is high, black and Latino unemployment's really low, I mean. Right, but I mean, so, but they, there, there are ways to parse all of those numbers that, that are less optimistic. So, you know, like the employment numbers are low because lots of people are just falling out of the, the, mm -hmm. the job search. But, and the, you know, the stock market, I think there's something like 8% of Americans are in the stock market. You know, it's like 92% of, of, of Americans are not even exposed to the stock market, right. or at least directly. So um, those numbers could be a little off, but it's something like that. The, um, but all of that would change radically the moment something, you know, so the, the, the left's worst fears about Trump are realized. And the moment he does something that, just gets you know gets us far closer to obvious you know war or actually into one 
uh, and it's clearly the wrong war. Uh, you know, the fact that, I mean, I think, I, th- I think that the, the, the U.S. no longer stands, at least in the eyes of the world, the U.S. no longer stands for uh, sanity on some fundamental questions of human values. I mean, like, you know, you know whether it's, you know, c- climate change and environmentalism and doing something sane with respect to that, or, uh, you know, human rights. I mean, he just, he just took a meeting with, with uh, the perhaps the greatest human rights violator, uh, certainly the current generation, um, and human, you know, it's just clear now that the U.S. will will glad hand a dictator and say nothing about the fact that he's running a gulag system, and they they have been for for decades. Uh, that so used to that used that... to be unthinkable, and that's and so that that. That extinguishes a certain hope of kind of moral high ground that the rest of the world, I think, rightly de- depended on us for. And given the current occupant of the Oval Office, you know, we've completely abandoned that. Right. And I, so I think, but it's hard to it's hard to price in those changes. I, I, I don't know what the consequences of, of all of that is. Right. So I guess the part that still seems odd to me is like, you know, when Obama ran, he said, you know, we have to sit down with these people. He said he wanted to sit down with Ahmadinejad no, with no, uh, you know, no yeah. prior discussions yeah. or whatever. That's basically what Trump did here. Now, I'm not saying Trump's the right guy to do it. Maybe he is in some insane way and maybe he isn't. But, but, Obama, but in most of those cases, there would have been some uh, lambasting of the person about human rights. You know, it's like, I mean, the, the, the standard, if, if it was Hillary Clinton doing any of these things, yeah. at least you know there would be that the norm of, of acknowledging that, that, I mean, so, so I mean, you just compare what Trump said about Kim Jong-un. Yeah, this, the statements were insane. To, to what's actually going on. I mean, so, so we have someone who is presiding over the, the starvation and just, I mean, it's beyond Orwellian immiseration of his people. I mean, it's like if you are caught saying the wrong thing or passing the wrong book to your neighbor or you've you tuned your radio to receive a broadcast from South Korea, you're sent to the gulag and your progeny are sent to the gulag and they're down to the third generation, right? I mean, that's, that's the punishment for this. Uh, and uh, we have the president of the United States saying that he's, he's a great guy, he's an he's a intelligent guy, he loves his people, I mean, that's a verbatim quote, he loves his people, yeah. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, it's just, it's like, I don't even know what, I mean, is there, is there anyone in this country who, I mean, it's just like there's so many layers at which we have lost sight of reality here that's like, it's, I don't know where the free fall stops. Like, on one level, there's a sense that he's, he's lying, right? Like, he's saying something he must know is untrue, mm-hmm. right? So, like, he... He knows what's right. going on. He knows what life the is like in, 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 in North Korea, Korea. So he knows that to say that this man loves his people is a misrepresentation. But what do people actually think? I think, I think, it's, I think it's, there's, there's another layer beyond that. No, he actually doesn't know that. Like he's so ignorant of what's happening in the world that he's just talking and there's just no burden on him to represent reality at all. Um, or... There's a layer beyond that. It simply doesn't matter. Like, like the difference between those two things, lying mm. and bullshitting, doesn't matter. And we're not even going to spend the, 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 the nanosecond it takes to judge between them. Uh, and beyond that, we're, uh, 
we're not even going to notice that he said anything strange there. And that's, a, that's kind of where most of the country is. It's like we now have someone in office who will say things that make absolutely no sense, and they, they are meant to map on the most consequential examples of human suffering in our time, right? And the most consequential risks we run as a civilization. We're talking about nuclear war here and the conversations that can be had to, to prevent it. And he's saying things that are not only just untrue and obscenely untrue, no one's even noticing. And no one's even noticing that no one's noticing. I mean, like, so this is like, I don't even know where we are now, but it's just like, I don't think there's a name for this, right? And um, I think that matters. How many firewalls do you think we have until, if what you're saying is right, how many firewalls left are there before we're really in like, like some true dystopian, complete inability to communicate. But, but, but let me just clarify yeah, here. Yeah. So I'm not even judging whether anything bad happened in Singapore. Like I, so it's totally possible that the, that the evil Chauncey Gardner uh, character could be the thing that successfully gets us to have a better relationship with, with North Korea. So, so like, I, I mean, think that's what Scott that, Adams that, would that, say. That's possible. Yeah. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying I know that's impossible. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't seem like a great bet to me. It, it doesn't, it's not the way I would, it's not, and even if it's possible, I don't think it's the best possible strategy. It would be better to have someone who actually read the briefing books, knows the history of negotiations, knows the possibility that he's being duped, um, is paying attention to all of that, even while, let's say, playing like the madman, if in fact that's the right strategy in this game of chicken. Uh, but so there's nothing optimal about this. But and, but I'm just saying I'm not cl- I'm not saying that that my worrying about the the, the what's happening um, is not predicated on the claim that oh this whole thing with North Korea is going to be a disaster. Right. It's, if it's successful, that still doesn't answer my primary concern about what we've done to ourselves in terms of our politics. Yeah. So how do we negotiate those two things? Let's just say for a second that despite all the lies, mm-hmm. I'm with you. He lies about absolutely everything. Okay. Despite all of this craziness <clears throat> and nonsense and all of that, that basically four years past, let's say the economy's basically fine. We don't get into some extra intractable war. Let's say something good comes out of the North Korea situation. Right. Basically things have been okay. You know, there isn't some yeah. massive terror attack or something. I would say we, we've dodged uh, many, many bullets and, and that we got very lucky. Yeah. I, I, it would, what's impossible to argue is that this is all a brilliant plan that has been thought through from the beginning on the part of Trump. I think that's, I mean, there's just no evidence for that at all, right? It's not that he is, he is deeply informed about world history and current events and all of the, all of the information one would think you would need to know to, to game this out at some genius level, you know, four-dimensional chess, right? <laughs> right. Uh, or to follow the, the Scott Adams program. And uh, so that's not happening. So, but we could live in a world where having someone who kind of fundamentally is just a reality TV show star thrust into this position of immense responsibility. We could live in a world where that can work out in surprising ways, or at least not cause some kind of disaster. Yeah. I hope we live in that world. I mean, I'm, you know, I hope that he succeeds in every way we would want a president to succeed. Uh, and then I also, also hope he doesn't get reelected. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, I, I think it's still, it's, it's obvious to me that we're paying an immense price, even if terrible things don't happen. So if terrible, if terrible things don't happen and the, and the left sort of continues with the track that I think we both see it's on, right. 
could you possibly vote for one of those people? Like, would you feel that this is uh, this could override every yeah, well, fear? Well, it, it depends who the person is and what the what the trade-offs are. I, mean, I think, you know, I you know, in my world, almost anyone would be better than Trump. But you know, give me the the sufficiently obnoxious choice on the left, and you know, I would I could rethink that. Yeah. You know? So I, I think it's uh, <laughs> well. I think I think you mean rethink that not to vote for Trump, but you'd end up. Voting for third party, or. yeah, I mean, or that it wouldn't matter. It's, you know, we could be in a situation where it's just both sides are so terrible that you know, let's just toss a coin. Yeah, uh, but it, it's just it should be. I mean, it's I don't know how we got here. We've got more than three hundred million people in this country. There are many really impressive people in this country. How <laughs> is it that we can't field a candidate who has? Just obvious depth of knowledge, an obvious moral compass, and you know sound goals. Do you think you it's know? just that nobody that was truly good, that was truly knowledgeable, that was truly decent, and all the things that we'd really want from a president would <clears throat> ever do it now in a time when every one of your texts will be gone through, every your internet search history, your every little relationship you've ever had, that the ability to dig. <clears throat> deeper and dive into more of just the nonsense that no good person who's ever lived a full life and made mistakes and done drugs or whatever else it is would ever want to do it. So instead you get sort of this shameless person who has done probably everything and, and all sorts yeah. of crazy things, but just doesn't care what you know. Whereas a, a good, decent person who wants to live a decent life and have a family and all that, and I'm not even commenting on his, it seems like his family really loves him, so I don't mean that, but that, that just someone, the person that you're looking for in that imaginary equation mm. would never want to do it. That's not well, someone who would opt in. Well, I think there are people who, are, who will opt in who are normal, it's just whether or not they will get noticed and get promoted to, so like, for instance, I just interviewed a guy who you may not have heard of, Andrew Yang, mm -hmm. who's already declared his candidacy for 2020 as a Democrat, uh, he's a Silicon Valley guy. Uh, I just recorded a podcast with him. I think it'll be the next one I release. A very interesting guy whose whole platform, it seems, is universal basic income. I mean, he's just he's looking at what's happening in tech and automation and AI, and he says, you know, this. And as many of us have said, uh, or at least worried, that that there will be jobs lost in in the near term that aren't coming back and aren't converting to new. It's not. It's not like. Yeah, you know, any analogy you want to draw to previous moments in, in economic history, you know, there will be truck drivers losing jobs and we're not going to retrain those truck drivers as software engineers. Yeah. And uh, this is going to be, forget about all the other highfalutin concerns about AI, this is going to be catastrophic if we don't figure out how to deal with it. And he thinks UBI is the solution. And he, he um, his book is, he wrote a book that, that in very stark terms, puts it all in perspective. His book is The, the War on Normal People. Uh, but I, I've just, I'll have a podcast with well, him probably like out next week. That sounds like it could have been your next yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The War on Normal People. But he's, uh, you know, he's a very articulate guy. He's, he's, you know, thought about these issues deeply. Whether he's right about UBI being the panacea, you know, I think is, is certainly open for debate. But um, he strikes me as, I mean, I don't know him. I just did one podcast with him. But he strikes me as a, you know, completely sane, normal, non-fame-seeking person who just wants to 
screw up his life by becoming president, <laughs> and, and because he's worried, he's just simply worried about the future his kids are going to, going to inherit. Yeah. All right. So one more on the political stuff, yep. then we'll shift to some other stuff. So did you catch? Um, I know you've been on the show a couple of times. Uh, did you happen to catch uh, real time on Friday or see the clip of Bill basically saying that he's sort of hoping for a recession? Because that'll wake people up. Did, did you have no, that no? I, I actually, so I miss. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm at least a week behind, but no, I, I didn't see. Yeah. That. So Bill, in effect, said that if it takes a recession to derail this thing, that 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 he'd be for that. Right. And you know, I I like Bill a lot. You know, I I I'd love to have him on the show to discuss some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I thought that moment of him saying that a guy who's pr- I have no idea what he's worth. He's probably worth at least fifty million bucks or something crazy. Mm. Uh, which I don't begrudge him any of that, of course. That what he said there so caught me as just this is what people hate about liberals, liberals, whatever mm. the, you know, or lefties or whatever it is. Like this idea that yeah, you may not like Trump and you may joke about him all the time and all this stuff and you may think he's lying all the time, but that what you would want is a recession, which you'll right. survive because you've got millions and millions of dollars. But it did make, the, my first thought when I saw it was that right after the election, for as much as you despise this man and, and are so fearful of all of the things that he will wrought upon us, mm. you, you made the analogy about the, the pilot in the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I no, thought- No, I think that's the right analogy. And I yeah. thought that's what we need right now. And, and I discussed this a little bit with Rogan today and, and that's where his take was also. Yeah, well, so I, so I haven't seen the clip from Bill, and so I can imagine at least two charitable interpretations of it that take that that uh, callousness off it. One would just be the idea that we're running such an intolerable risk with this guy at the helm, and the only way he's going to be voted out is to have something like a recession. It's so like, there definitely like, was an element of that. Right. For so sure. like I mean, it's like so it's, this is we're running every day. You wake up and don't think about it. You're running the risk of nuclear catastrophe with this guy. That's you know, 50% more than it should be or that would otherwise be. Uh, and that, the, the price of that, again, a price you're not aware of paying because we're just talking about hypotheticals, right? It's just a risk, increased risk. Uh, it's worth doing some other, you know, catastrophic uh, change if it's the thing that's going to get us a new president. And, and so, I mean, that, you know, that would be defensible if you actually thought that that was, in fact, the situation we're mm. in. Um, but, you know, I don't know what he was actually thinking. Yeah. So. Um, isn't it nice that you give the charitable interpretation? Yeah. You don't well, want to just no, do what your opponents cer- do? It's certainly not surprising in this case because he, he's a friend, but yeah. it, it's, uh, I would, you know, I try to do that even when I'm thinking about, I mean, truth is, I do that with Trump. Like, <laughs> I mean, the thing that I find so intolerable yeah. about the left is also exemplified in how they attack Trump for things that he's not guilty of. Clearly, I mean, there's no one who despises this man more than me. I'm not, I mean, if, you know, I, I don't know how you compare these things, but like, I, I'll go to the mat with anyone. Yeah, on, the pinata on, you brought yeah, here yeah, to, yeah. to destroy I, later. Is I mean, I can, I, can, I can talk endlessly about what's wrong with this guy. Yeah. Right? But when people, when people on the left, or not, I, mean, I'm not, I don't mean just fringe left, I mean the New York Times, yeah. go after him for things that seem clearly just calculated to mislead. I mean, they're just disingenuous. Um, it's, it's just, I mean, I, I, I get as annoyed by that as by anything. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I, within my own mind, I feel pretty balanced in how careful I am. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, for, I mean, to take the, um, 
like the MS-13 thing. I mean, have you seen yeah. what's going on with MS-13 on Long Island? Did you did you watch that front line? Uh, I didn't see the front line, okay. but, I, but, but I, you know, know, you know, know what's like, going on there. I mean, so yeah, it's, it, the fact that anyone is minimizing the significance of how horrible this is, yeah. right? It's just, uh, and playing politics with that and catching him saying like, you know, these people are animals, right? And then using that to mean that he thinks everyone coming from Latin America is an animal. Um, it's, uh, I mean, that's, it's just so toxic. It, so what, I view that as different somehow than, all right, forget the BuzzFeeds and salons and that whole set that we already talked about. But this right. thing now with the New York Times and CNN, where they're doing this now, yeah. that to me is something that is truly systemically, that's different and that's extremely dangerous. Like what could possibly be happening there at a, at a sort of systemic level that makes sense that they can get mm -hmm. away with this stuff. Well, well, they know, they know five minutes later it's gonna be exposed. Well, I don't know if they know that, but I, but I think the fact that you see it that way is a measure of how important a reality-based conversation is and how different the expectation is of something like the New York Times versus something like Breitbart. Right. Right. So like it matters that the New York Times gets it wrong. It matters that the New York Times is at all clickbaity. <clears throat> right. And so and then when you compare that to something like Breitbart, you know, it, it, it's just there's a fundamentally different expectation. And so um, well, we that's why people, people give me shit all the time. Oh, I'm always attacking New York Times and CNN. It's like, those are the ones I think matter. Yeah, no, you it know, does like, matter. You I want me to attack the same agree. ones everyone else is attacking or that I don't expect to do real journalism. They're just yeah. dot-coms. You know, yeah. that's all they are. Yeah, but I mean, it, matter, it, it matters across the board because people yeah. are confused by this. People think that Vox is like the New York Times, yeah. right? And, and it's confusing because you can find articles on Vox that are fantastic, mm -hmm. right? You could, I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a real... Um, range of quality you get everywhere now. And um, and you, there shouldn't be a wide range in something like the New York Times, right? And, 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 it's, and we're seeing this, you know, like as any of us get close to being part of the news story, right? Whether it's a, a directly on you or it's, it's told about one of your friends, it's like the New York Times, I mean, someone I, I know at the New York Times, uh, Brett Stevens, uh, who who moved from the Wall Street Journal and now he's an opinion writer of the New York Times. I know the piece. He, he just went after Elon yeah. for, I mean, it was just a pure clickbait hit piece that was just, it was just, you know, Breitbart level trash, right? I mean, it was, it was wrong in every respect, um, apart from the fact that it, that it summarized, you know, some of the economic skepticism about Tesla, but I mean, he's, you know. Right, but that even wasn't really the issue. No, I mean, yeah. he basically said that Elon is, Silicon Valley's Trump, yeah. right, and a con man, and it's just just no. He's got this no there there. He's lying about everything. Um, I mean, if, if ever there were a person you can't say is is without substance and is a, just a pure con man, it's Elon. I mean, it's like this, like he he could fail to do half the things he's promising to do, <laughs> and he does more than the next produ most productive hundred people. I yeah. mean, it's just it's it's, it's insane. So and I, you know, I, I mean, so I, I, it was it was hilarious because I this all was timed with my getting off Twitter, yeah. as I said, by like ninety five percent. But I was on long enough to notice this and 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 just take a shot at at uh, Brett in a you know in response um, because it was intolerable to me. But the New you York did it Times in a somewhat respectful way, right? Like yeah, you and then of, it, you, kind of, you didn't do it the way that most people do it, which was just like an, a, a 
blurted out a song. No, no. Well, I yeah. let him know because I was I, yeah. I'm a fan of Brett's. I mean, I, yeah. I, I publicly celebrated also on Twitter his move to the New York Times. Like I congratulated him, and you know I think he's a he's a very smart guy. You know, for whatever re, you know dogmatic reason, he was sort of destined to get this this wrong. But he, he's so totally wrong that it it's just it, it is, is a real consequence. The New York Times can't afford to be this wrong about in this case. You know, the prospects of a company like Tesla and you know clean tech and you know it's just it was uh, um, all of this connects obviously with climate change and you know huge important issues. So. Yeah, and I think that one for I don't know Brett personally, but it seems like a, what what this was all about was because Elon was attacking the media because he was unhappy right. about the way some stuff was reported. Yeah, and then Brett was obviously being defensive over the media. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but I was very pleased watching Elon's thread on this because I was like, yeah, we need more people to be attacking this, you know? Otherwise, the, the times won't turn around. Yeah, yeah. And well, you know, I don't know whether he's doing himself uh, harm by engaging in that way. I mean, he's, you know, this could be just something that happens to somebody once they cross, you know, the, the 20 million mark on Twitter. It's like, like you just get, you, <laughs> just you become like Trump in that respect and you just decide to, you know, use Twitter that way. But uh, it's... I mean, on one level, it's refreshing that you have someone, you have a CEO who's kind of this transparent with what he's thinking and this and just engaging on all of these issues with, with you know, people in his ad mentions. But um, it's, I don't know, I th- you know, I think it's, again, I think, I think social media, the net result for virtually everyone is you're lucky to get back to zero. Yeah. You know, like that's, the, the, if, you, if you're going to take an inventory of what was gained in the end by all of this, all of the energy you've, you've spent fighting with people right. or you correcting check. the record, yeah. it's you're, you're lucky to, to have to gotten it. Right, you even, can check you know. all the times you've owned someone versus if right. you, you know, all the times they owned you. And, all right, yeah. so let, let's put all of that aside for a okay. second. And before, I do want to do a sort of deep dive on the, on the Jordan stuff because I think maybe we can set the table in a, in a nice way for your conversation. Sure. But what, what's on your mind more than anything else right now that, that's not political or not? Uh, unrelated to the, the conversation with Jordan? Yeah, okay. like what, what are you really thinking about right now? Well, I'm thinking more about the core things that interest me, like the nature of consciousness, you know, and and just how to live a good life given the fact that we wake up every day not knowing how long we've got, and we're absolutely sure that we don't get this day again. You know, so it's just like how to how to meaningfully engage moment to moment in our lives in a way that's rewarding and and. Uh, minimizes unnecessary suffering and increases joy and, and insight and creativity. And, and so it's, it, for me, as you know, meditation is, is part of that, certainly. And uh, I've, just, so I've just come out with this meditation app that is now in, in beta in, yeah. in, in, on Apple and the Android beta will be, it's probably about a month away. This has been it's taken. I mean, it's completely mystifying to me that it's taken me this long to build an app. I mean, I've, uh, talk about something yeah, what are you, you, doing over there, you didn't understand. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it literally is just a glorified MP3 player, and yet it has taken me lo- longer than two years and it, it just vast expense to build this thing. Uh, but in any case, I'm I'm happy with the um, the iteration that's coming out now, and so that's uh, I'm gonna. It's not just a meditation app; it'll have my podcast and other content I put on it. But uh, I'm thinking my, my withdrawal from 
the, the toxicity of social media and, and the political conversations has led me to just clear uh, a lot more space, frankly, for, for things that I think are, are uh, interesting and, and profound in a durable way, that where you're not going to look back five years from now or 20 years from now and wonder why you spent your time mm-hmm. on those things. Like, and so much of, of all of our lives, but you know, like my, my life and my, my public life in particular has been spent on things where, where I look back, it, it just looks like one opportunity cost after another. <laughs> I mean, like virtually everything that I've, I'm well known for talking about has been a waste of time. And, and that's, it's, it's, it's in some sense necessary. It's not that I've squandered my time in a way that I didn't think was necessary, but. Like but it, I, but it, it woke up a lot of people along the way. Yeah, to, to so sli- it, hence, to hence I felt it was necessary, but it, it was an opportunity cost. It's yeah. like, it's like it's, 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 in some level, uh, on some level it's, it's trying to get to zero. It's like, can we get to the starting point where we then can advance the conversation past what we, should had every reason to already understand to be true. So I think a lot of people are lining up behind that. And again, it, it still gets to where I think this thing is furled right now. I mm-hmm. do think there has been some sort of shift. I can see it when I'm with the Peterson audiences. I can see it just, there's a new conversation happening that people are starting to arm themselves with like, how do we move forward mm-hmm. through this craziness, whether we all agree on belief or lack of belief or religion or some of that other, some of that other stuff. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that you told me the first time we met, which now it was the first time you did my show, was September 9th, 2015. It seems like 87 lifetimes ago. That, that was the first show? The first okay. show, okay. yeah. That was at ORTV way back right. when, which the whole purpose of having you on the show was to clean up so much of the mess. Right. And I think we did a pretty decent job of yeah. it. But at the same time, because of all this, you know, the people that want to drag you just keep dragging you. But one of the most interesting things, and I know you don't believe in <clears> karma <throat> in, a, in any kind of traditional sense, but that you were on real time to talk about waking up, talking to a, yeah. talk about yeah. the book tour that was about a guide to spirituality without religion. Right. Thus, your book tour got ransacked by that. So it's like, yeah, I know you don't believe in karma, but it's kind of, an, it's just like, whoa, that's something yeah. pretty profound. I've actually never thought about what my life would have been like without social media at that point. Like, like because the, the consequence in my life of, of that, you know, fight with Ben Affleck on, on real time was basically a year spent digging out from that charge. Yeah. It's like, like, okay, so your, your views about Islam are racist. Like Had the, anyone ever called you racist before that or bigoted or anyone of any consequence? Like, was there anything... Well, I mean, I'm sure undoubtedly, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, but I don't, I don't remember it being something I, that I had to respond to. Yeah. I don't think. And, yeah. But it was just that was so uh, captivating to people, and there was so much, so much spun out after that. But again, had I not been on social media, it might have, in my world, it might have <laughs> right. blown over in in two weeks. Right. Right. So I, I might have not felt there was anything to respond to. And uh, I could have just moved on directly to talking about meditation and you know a rational take on spirituality and um, I don't know but it's, it's certainly possible that that's the case. So, all right. So meditation. Wh- what do you think is the right amount then of spirituality for, <clears throat> for the amount of people that are watching this? 
that maybe are on the fence about religion or, or actually are, are atheists, but that are trying to figure out some spiritual sense of going forward and cleaning out some of the, the mm. clutter that we're inundated with. What do you think is the, sort of the easiest way to enter that, that world? Well, I'm sure this is something uh, Jordan and I are going to get, uh, we're going to butt heads over, but uh, the, the level at which people have been primed to think about meaning and profundity and awe and the sacred and spirituality by traditional religion, especially, you know, Abrahamic religion, is uh, certainly not necessary. And, it, uh, you know, I would argue it's, it's not at all useful when you talk about what the, the opportunity actually is and what's, what's available to you as a, as a conscious agent in this moment. Uh, and it's not an accident that people are going to the East and to, to East, the Eastern tradition for insight with respect to this particular variable of just, just how to pay attention to experience closely enough so as to notice something worth noticing. In the West, people have been you know, praying to Yahweh for 2,000 years to do that, right? And it's, 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 it's explicitly dualistic. It's explicitly... Uh, uh, hostage to this notion of revelation, the notion of a God with whom you're in relationship, who can, who can be propitiated with prayer or not. It's just, it's hooked to all of the mythologizing that, that Jordan is so enamored of. Uh, and in my world, it's totally unnecessary and totally, all that's confusing. It's like, it's needlessly confusing, right? Um, and it would be just as confusing to go to Tibetan Buddhism and acquire all the religiosity of, of the Tibetans or to go to you know, the Indian tradition and take on all of the, the, the ordinary forms of Hinduism, you know, the, the exoteric, you know, non, uh, the, the dualistic forms of Hinduism. So you're like, you know, just how much time should we spend thinking about the monkey god Hanuman or you know, Ganesh, the elephant-headed Ganesh, and did Shiva really you know, tear his head off and put an elephant head on there? It's like, do we, it's like these books, you could run the same game that Jordan is doing with Judeo, the Judeo-Christian tradition with Hinduism and think that somehow all of that, all of that myth-making and storytelling is necessary. Uh, I'm not saying there's no, I'm not saying you can't find people who have some good result in their lives by thinking of, you know, thinking they're in relationship to Hanuman every day, right? right? Uh, but there's, there's something truly universal and not at all bound by culture and not at all bound by history about the nature of consciousness. And that can be realized directly. And, med and meditation is simply a tool for doing that. And it, just, it is just an accident, an, an explainable accident, but it's an, it's an accident of history that there are certain traditions that got the point very early in, an un, in a way that's uncontaminated by needless concepts, uh, and certain traditions don't have it at all. And, and Buddhism is, is unique in that you can find a strand in it that really is not, a, it's not even a religion. It is just simply a methodology for paying attention to the, the nature of consciousness. And you, can, and you need not take on any Buddhism, you know, even as a philosophy, in order mm. to do that. And so. You know, you know, in my book, Waking Up, and in whenever I talk about this, uh, yeah, I try to boil it down. It's to, here somewhere if you want to reference it. Yeah, oh, no, there no, it yeah, is. right there. Uh, I, know I still remember what I think on that regard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can you can get to the heart of the matter without 
presupposing any religious nonsense. And the heart of the matter is that, you know, consciousness, again, as I said, is, is the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion. I mean, so whatever we are, whatever, however consciousness is integrated with physical reality, we, that's still a question mark. Um, whether we're being run on the, you know, the, uh, a supercomputer in, in some, you know, future state of humanity and we're just a simulation or whether, you know, whether we're, you know, have been invented by aliens. I mean, this, this universe could be strange in ways that we can't even imagine. Still, there's, there's, this, there's this moment where something seems to be happening. There's something that is like to be you, whatever yeah. you are, right? Whatever the physics right of things second. are. Right this second. This yeah. second, yes. That is, the, that is the fact of consciousness. That, that is what we mean by consciousness. I mean, this, it's possible to define consciousness in other ways, but those, those, those definitions are, are, are confusing. Do you, do you think Jordan disagrees with that point? Because I don't know that. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but no, I yeah. would doubt, uh, yeah, I don't think you can coherently disagree yeah, with that. I, I mean, I it's like, this is, this is, you know, this could be a dream, right? You could be asleep and dreaming, and we're not even doing this podcast. But still, the fact that it seems like something at this moment to mm-hmm. be you that is what that is what we mean by consciousness and the it is just a fact that you can pay attention to that circumstance carefully enough to discover certain things that are profound and surprising and do actually link up with the phenomenology of religion i mean do, i mean so so at least some of what jesus said about what it's like to be jesus is is discoverable as a property of your own consciousness now, and you don't have to be a Christian to do that. And so it is with Buddha or any other you know any other matriarch or patriarch of of the world's religious traditions. And you don't need these these additional cultural artifacts that clearly are the product of the fact that you that people were isolated from one another <clears throat> and speaking different languages and never corresponding about you know what, their claims. Um, there's just there is a deeper universal culture-free reality which we are subjectively, and that that is consciousness and and its contents in each moment. And one thing you can realize about consciousness is that the self you take yourself to be in each moment, that the feeling that you are riding around in your head as the the unchanging center of your life, that's an illusion, and you can discover that to be an illusion. You can you can lose that feeling of being a an occupant of your body like not being identical to your body mm-hmm. but being sort of just behind your face as a subject who's appropriating experience in each moment who's in, you know in addition to thoughts arising it's felt that there's a thinker of the thoughts right that's an illusion that can be cut through and when you do cut through it your experience changes in ways that that Again, link up with some of the ideals of you know traditional contemplative and spiritual and and mystical uh, uh, claims, but again, you can do that. We we can have a twenty first century science based conversation about that, and that's and so that, that's what I think is worth paying attention to. All right. So before we dive into some of the specifics with Jordan, do you uh, get do you ever get shit from the atheist community for even going this far into spirituality? Is oh that, yeah, is that a real, oh, yeah, like yeah. is that a common thing? Because that that world of it, I think I've completely <clears throat> missed. If so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean I've often joke about the fact that the, the talk I gave at the uh, the Atheist Alliance conference in I think it was two thousand and seven 
was the only talk I'm aware of that ever started with a standing ovation and ended <laughs> with booze and, and people leaving. And it was this, it, there were two, I made two points there that, that people found indigestible. One is I said, you know, we don't need this word atheist mm-hmm. or atheism. And, and we don't, need to, be, we don't meet, need to be a victim group that meets in bad hotels and talks about, you know, our identity, right? Yeah. Like, and and um, so, and it was, just a, it was just a fact that I had never, uh, it was just an accident, but it was true that the book that got me inducted into the, the you know, the, the pantheon of, of, of atheists in this yeah. generation, uh, The End of Faith, was a book where I never used the word atheist. I never, yeah. And I never suppressed the word atheist. It just never occurred to me to use it. I wasn't thinking in terms of atheism. I was thinking in terms of science and common sense and evidence and you know, the, uh, the obvious, the, fr- the, the, the fl- flagrant violations of all that uh, on the religious side of the conversation. So I was, um, I don't think we, we need the word. I mean, the, you know, we can, this is a debatable point politically. Maybe, yeah. maybe, the, maybe I'm wrong about this and it's useful or at least useful for a time. But um, I think... What, what was the second thing that you said in that? And then, so, that, so, so then I followed that with a conversation, uh, you know, about 20 minutes of my talking about spirituality and, and the contemplative experience of the sort I, I, I just mentioned here. And I said that it was a problem in the atheist community that, that basically this variable of atheism and, and uh, a repudiation of religion was selecting for people who, for the most part, either hadn't had certain kinds of experiences or, or, or viewed them as, as just purely pathological. Like these were people who, you know, hadn't done psychedelics or mm-hmm. came away thinking, well, that was just madness or that was, you know, those were just drug experiences. And just they had some deflationary account of all that that, that uh, basically said there's no there there. You know, there's nothing sacred. We're just, you know, we're just bags of, of chemicals and we're going to die and then nothing, and then nothing happens thereafter. Uh, and it matters mm-hmm. that you have people who don't have uh, real powers of introspection. So it's to notice, notice that there's something profound to, to be gleaned by paying attention to your experience. And I, mean, I used to be one of those people. I mean, I, you know, I've said that. But for psychedelics, I think, you know, if you had, if you had taught me to meditate when I was 18... I think I, I, mean, I was a I, again. I didn't think of myself as an atheist. I didn't think in those categories. But I was a I was a strident atheist. I mean, when I would meet someone, I remember meeting someone. And remember when they taught? Um, I was in the in the the great books seminar in, in as a freshman in college, and the Bible was one of the great books. And I remember just you know vilifying the Bible you know to my professor because because it just like what is this theocratic insanity we're having to read here like like she, what I, this is this is not nearly as good as the other stuff right. you're having us read and the, the, I'm meeting half the class that believes this stuff is not just a book right it's like I, I was so it's it's funny to look back on that because I was like you know I was as militant an atheist <laughs> as I ever was as a professional atheist right and I didn't even have the category of atheism in my head right uh, but then I, you know, took MDMA for the first time, and and took acid after that, and discovered a range of experience that I was just fundamentally blind to, just just cognitively, emotionally, and every other you know channel. You know, like this was a a total revelation to me that it was mm. possible to to have consciousness appear that way, right? And 
How do you know when you're when you're doing MDMA or when people are taking? You, you haven't done ayahuasca, right? No, right. No. Or when people do all these things, how do you know <clears throat> where it where it's just something that you need inside you versus true? Or I guess that you would count that as as true consciousness or true truth. Or well, something? so so whatever is true as a matter of reality out there. One thing that can't be doubted is that, that you take one of these drugs and it proves to you that it's possible to have a different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Right now, you, you, it could be psychosis, right? right? But like, it's still instructive to realize that you, you are having a, you, you're tending to get up every morning and be very recognizable to yourself. I mean, you are very much like you were yesterday and you're, and you're, be, you're being buffeted within the bounds of, uh, you know, s- positive and negative experience that is is very familiar to you, and at you know if you were at all like me at that at that point in my life, there was absolutely nothing within that channel that was fundamentally surprising in a way that would would uh, answer to the name of you know spirituality or or you know anything profound for like there's, there's nothing if, if i if you had taken me into the religious section of a, bo- a bookstore or the or the mystical section of a bookstore i would read all of that and it would be evocative of nothing mm-hmm. for me it's like it's just like there's just these people are either conscious frauds or they're suffering from some kind of psychopathology right and that is what many atheists believe about somebody like Jesus or the right. Buddha. Like this, he's probably an epileptic, right? Um, and we know the temporal lobe epilepsy can give you, you know, you, or you know, migraine auras can make you think you're having visions, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is the kind of thing you get from, you know, the James Randies of the world, right? And I mean, and it's no deep knock on James Randi. I think he's done very important things mm-hmm. for, for you know, the skeptical community and to you know, debunk religious bullshit, which again, I think is dangerous and divisive and confusing and leads people to waste a lot of time. I mean, it's just- a, you but, know, but you don't think that right? that line of thinking though, the, the James Randi line of thinking, just leaves you with enough of a, <clears throat> of a human experience? Is that a fair way to sum it well, up? Of a, of a full experience as a yeah, human? Yeah, well, it's just that there's, there is something absolutely profound and even self-transcending about what we are subjectively. I mean, it's just that consciousness is, consciousness is the only thing that matters on some level. I mean, it's, it's the only space in which anything can matter. It's the space in which values can be discovered. It's the, it's the, the space in which we, we discover just how good the, or bad the universe can be. Right? I mean, this, this is the opportunity. Everything else is just a thought. Everything else is your memory of yesterday or your expectation of some future moment where you are going to be conscious. Right? So you're, you're, always, you're always ever here in this space where the lights are on. And if you, when, when the lights go off, if you, you know, if you lose consciousness in anesthesia or death or, you know, or deep sleep, although I think the, the jury's still out on whether deep sleep is a, is a state of unconsciousness, uh, you know, then, then there's just the absence of, of all of that. But here, as a matter of your, your own subjectivity, there is just this space, and this is the space in which every mystic, uh, every founder of a religion, every, you know, every person who's ever had his mind blown on psychedelics or on, you know, on ayahuasca or you know, every shaman, every, like, 
this is the space in which epiphanies are had and claims true or false about the nature of reality are made. And the thing that has been overlooked to, a, to a, an astonishing degree in the Western tradition in particular is that, is that introspection can be a methodology that, is, that, that can be engaged with real intellectual honesty and a spirit of you know, empirical, you know, first person empirical experiment. Uh, it can now be correlated with you know, third person methods of you know, studying people's brains while they you know, have these kinds of insights. Uh, but introspection was just stillborn in the West 150 years ago when mm -hmm. you know, people like William James were trying to get it off the ground. And what you have in place of a really intelligent conversation about the nature of human consciousness, you have people's lingering attachment to Judeo-Christian religion in the mm -hmm. West, right? Apart from what has been imported for, with, you know, from you know, something like Buddhism into science now. I mean, you have you know, there's dozens of neuroscience labs now that study meditation, and they're, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of these scientists are essentially closet Buddhists. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and this, is, this, will, this will be, I'm sure, something Jordan and I disagree about, or at least this will, this will be a part of the conversation we need to have, is that so much of what he thinks is, is profound and non-negotiable and just... just just in our bones, based on our appearance in the West, just necessary. This Judeo-Christian Mishigas he's got going on. Um, it's uh, it's just not. I mean, it's just it actually isn't. It's not doing the it's not doing the necessary work he he claims it is. And even if it's and again, I'm not denying that you can't have certain experiences that are, seem meaningful given that frame. I mean, there's, you know, before Jordan was doing this, you know, you had Joseph Campbell and the whole, you know, men's movement, you know, you had Robert Bly and, you know, other, other people who were, who were absolutely entranced by the power of story and, you know, all of the, 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 the history, you know, cr cross-culturally of, you know, powerful stories being told and just how lives can be framed by story. Yes, that is part of you know a possible range of human experience, but there's something deeper than that, and there's something that doesn't entail any uh, parochial religious attachment, and that and, and so yeah, I'm I'm much more focused on that. Level. Yeah. All right. So I, I do want to since I've been spent so much time around Jordan, I do yeah. want to kind of share some of my thoughts on on that specifically. But just to go back a few minutes. I've had a few moments on the show when I found that if I think so, if someone's really telling the truth, <clears throat> we're like truly, truly locked in and in the moment, mm. that I do feel something. I can't quite explain it. I'm sure I, perhaps you've had experiences like this when you're really having a profound moment with someone, that there is a little bit of an aura, like a little bit of something that's mm. a little bit different. And I actually, oh, yeah. ha I, I actually had it in that moment that you were talking about that a few moments ago. It's a fleeting, it's just a bizarre fleeting thing that I mm. can't quite explain. But I've had it a few times and it's only happened when I felt that someone, that we were either really locked in at that level or I felt someone was truly being as authentic as they possibly could be. Mm. So as that was just happening just then, what I really felt you were saying was be present. I mean, almost everything yeah. that you just said really was, if we were all sort of truly being present at the highest level that we could be, which is virtually impossible to do for more than a fleeting second, and that's, uh, you talk about that a lot mm. in Waking Up, that that's how we would achieve, I think, what you're looking for. Is that a... 
a fair yeah. estimation? Yeah, well, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to do, but it's not, it's actually simple. It's not complicated. And so, the, I mean, in this circumstance, so you and I are having a conversation. We're looking into each other's eyes. This is a, you know, this is a experience that we all have all the time. We're meeting people. Having these social encounters is, is so much of what makes us human, and it's so much of what makes the sense of self. I mean, the sense of self and other are, are inextricably bound up, and I, you know, I would argue that they arise, it's kind of, kind of just really two sides of, of a single coin. And so in a moment like this, it's I mean, the t- kind of two levels at which one could be mindful, to use the, the, the term of jargon that's now everywhere. I mean, yeah. m- mindfulness is just a, an ability to pay close attention to what it's like to be you without grasping at what's pleasant or pushing away what's unpleasant and without being lost in thought about it, without, mm-hmm. without seeing every moment through this veil of thought. So, so, you and I, so the conventional circumstances, you and I are having a conversation, we're looking at one another, and yet we're both, con- we're, we're both inundated by our, uh, the automaticity of our own discursive thought. So mm-hmm. you're talking, I'm trying to listen to what you're saying, but I'm being distracted by my own thinking, mm-hmm. right? So you say something and I think, okay, well, I'm gonna say, I, what am I gonna say to that? You know, and so that, that contest between the contents of my own mind mm-hmm. and just giving you my attention, that's something that people are living with all the time and they, if they're not meditators, they only notice it when things are just, where, where, when it just, things run completely off the rails. So they, you're reading a book and you realize, okay, I've read this page three times and I still don't know what's on the page. Like right. I've just gone down, it's like, so then you're just, you're just a malfunctioning robot at that mm-hmm. point. Like you just, you're thinking so much that you can't pay attention to what you, know, you wanna pay attention to. And, so, but we have that interpersonally. So the first kind of real gain would be to be someone who, in a circumstance like this, can just notice the difference between being lost in thought and really just being focused on the other person than mm-hmm. just paying attention. And to sort of secure that in a in a, uh, a more frequent way by just get letting go of your thoughts and coming back and, and paying attention. Right, but oddly, thinking about that actually reinforces it in a weird way, which is part of the yeah, no, sort so of the first yeah, problem. Yeah, right? it's not a matter of thinking about it; it's a matter right. of just it's just just kind of granting your attention again. And it, like, there's nothing to hold on to. The moment you notice you're thinking, you just come back to to, to paying attention. Uh, but the, the further insight, which you know, tends to only come when once you you get pretty good at the first kind of mindfulness, is to notice that this feeling of being a self over here, a feeling of being behind your face. You know, so the feeling that you have that I'm looking at you, right? The feeling that I'm looking at something. The feeling that you're there to be looked at. The feeling that you're an object in the world for me. That, if you look for that, if you look for yourself in this moment, you can fail to find it in a way that really does change your experience. Like, like you, the, the, the sense of, of being a self, the sense of being the center of consciousness can drop out in a way that just, just leaves the world. It just leaves, and it, it leaves me in the world, but it leaves me, it's like, like there's only one face you see at this moment. You don't mm-hmm. see your face. Mm-hmm. You just see mine, and then you know, obviously I, I'm in the opposite situation. But when I'm paying attention to you, when I'm really paying attention to you, I lose the sense 
that I'm over here paying attention to you. I mean, there, there really is just the world, and you're part of it. And that, I mean, that's the insight that's often described as, as emptiness or, or, the, or selflessness in, in a Buddhist context. And you can have that, obviously you don't have that in, you don't need another person to have that. You can have that looking at a coffee cup uh, or even with your eyes closed. But with another person, it's really vivid because so much, our, so much of our sense of, of being a self is ramified by yeah. being in a relationship. And I, I care what you think of me or like you, you make a, a facial expression and I'm react uh, like what does that mean for like how do you see me it's like we're constantly doing this dance with one another where we're reading in the other person's face how we're doing and that you know that's something you can have the experience of just dropping that entirely and it's it's amazingly freeing to drop that entirely because you know all of your psychological suffering and all of your sense of being imperiled in relationship to other people is is anchored to the sense of I'm me over here vulnerable to the thoughts and whims and 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 malicious behavior of others and it's possible to just cancel that by by paying close enough attention to what is what consciousness is like I mean the the, the thing is that consciousness consciousness doesn't feel like a self mm-hmm. the, the feeling of self is is a, yet another object in consciousness. It's a, it, it is it's something, I mean, this is, a, again, this is, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not making a claim about the physics of things. I'm not, this is not Deepak Chopra saying that the universe is just consciousness or that we, consciousness was here before the Big Bang or anything like that. But the sense, and I'm not making any claim that consciousness isn't the product of brains, but subjectively speaking, your sense that consciousness is in your head is mistaken. Your head is in consciousness. You're, the feeling of having a head, the feeling of having a face, all of that is, is appearing in consciousness in this moment. It, it's just as much in consciousness as your thoughts are, as the, the, the world is, as sounds are. I mean, so, you're, so like the feeling that you're inside of something is subjectively, it has things backwards. I mean, you, you, can, you can feel vividly that every that everything in you experience in each moment is just a matter of consciousness and its contents Mm -hmm. and the more you keep dropping back into that position of just being the space in which everything is arising then you can notice that it doesn't actually feel like what you take yourself to be in in most moments which is this this feeling of of being a self or being a uh, a subject you know riding around in the in the middle of everything appropriating it so yeah. I sort of had one of those moments there. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to do it, right? And that's the irony. I'm trying to do it as I'm listening to well, you. Well, no, you, but you can you can try to do it. I mean, you can. It's not that that's. It's not that all efforts to do it are doomed. I mean, you can you, you can learn how to look for this thing, and and then find it in a way that cancels the sense that there was anyone looking, or and and there's, there are ways to there. there Broadly speaking, there's sort of two ways to do this. That you can, uh, and again, both, this, is, this is what meditation is. There's different styles of meditation, but, but there are really only two ways to do this. You can either look for the self you think you have in a disciplined enough way, in a clear enough way, in a way where you're no, you're, you're no longer lost in thought and you can actually pay attention to something. You have enough concentration to pay attention and you look for yourself 
and you and you in the first moment of looking you fail to find it in a way that is shows you that there's it's not there yet everything else is still here I and mean, the mm-hmm. world is still here the lights are still on that's one method another method is to pay close enough attention to anything else i mean whether it's a sound or your breath or you know, sights or another person and recognize that when you're truly paying undistracted attention you in that moment of seeing say a coffee cup there really is just seeing there's not a seer and the thing seen there's not that you know i mean that really is what it's like to be continually tiling the world with concepts you're just you're just you know it's a it is a kind of undercurrent of thought in each moment that you're identified with and not noticing so if so a lot of techniques of meditation are just paying such scrupulous attention to an object a seeming object that you eventually collapse the distance between subject and object and that's i mean that's a more conventional approach of of mindfulness so i gotta tell you sam i think getting off twitter yeah (laughs) was probably the key to this whole thing that might well, that might really be there. All right, so let, let's talk about a little bit of the specifics of the Jordan thing, because obviously huh. I, I, we've done about twenty of these shows together. I can. Uh, oh yeah, so you've been you've been on a major tour with him. Yeah. So and we're you know I came home now for just like two or three days, and then and then we head out again. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think <clears> you know that I come more from a position of of a lack of belief than a position of belief is sort of where I inherently start. Probably similar to the way you described yourself at eighteen. Mm-hmm. From every now, he's different every night. Every night that we've done one of these, he, you know, I, I open it up, makes people laugh. He does about an hour and a half every single night. It's been different. So some nights he's right. talking about the fate of the West. Some nights he talks about the sovereignty of the individual. Some nights he gives you the twelve rules that are in the book, etc. Right. Et he mixes right. it up every night. But at some point, it, there's always something that whittles down to something about truth and belief. Of course, mm. from what I, ca- I don't want to. As Eric would say, if we're going to do this, we should, as Eric Weinstein would say, if we're going to do this, we should probably try to steel man him properly, uh-huh. and maybe he'll watch this, and I told him that we were going to do this, so, you know, hopefully it offers yeah. a little something for both of you guys. Yeah. I never see him pushing the straight-up idea of religion on people. Now, he is doing the, he's doing it through the prism that you described, the sort of Judeo-Christian prism of things, where he's talking about these stories. And what I sense that he's really hitting on that is resonating with people, and it does resonate with me even, is that the power of these stories, and maybe this is sort of the Joseph Campbell thing, Hmm. the power of these stories does offer some other transcendent truth that you cannot get another way. So the way that I can give it to you in a way that sort of makes sense to to me is that, you know, although I didn't really like the last couple movies, that the amount that I've loved Star Wars in my life, the mm. way that the stories of Star Wars, right, that they, mm. those stories of Star Wars have more relevance to wh- how I sort of view good and evil and, and um, the, the journey that you're on as a person. Mm. Um, they have more value to me than anything that I ever read out of a biblical thing. So I'm not taking his biblical mm. version of it. But that the power of story can somehow offer you some other some map to truth that I don't think right. necessarily is in conflict with anything you've said. D- does that? No, it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not giving you pearly what his argument is. I'm yeah. just giving you sort of my yeah. personal take. Yeah, no, but um, I'm, I'm aware of, of what he's been saying in this regard. And, yeah. and, um, and I think this is where maybe you guys got a little lost in that, in yeah, that first conversation yeah. that you had. I mean, so just as a general matter, 
I love much of what he says. He does, with some regularity, say something ridiculous enough with the same confidence he says all of the good things that you know, I perceive a real problem yeah. with can, what he's doing. Can you doing. give me an example of one of those just for... Well, I mean, did, did you see his uh, event with Matt Dillahunty? Did you see that? I, I didn't see it, but I know okay. a lot well, of people that, have been talking yeah, about that's, it. Yeah, that's worth watching. But okay. So, so uh, and again, I'm hoping, my hope is that he, we can make progress in these conversations where we don't get stuck just having a, a knockdown drag out yeah. over, over things like the points I'm gonna raise now yeah. because- But by the way, real yeah. quick, for the record, just I'm more than happy to tell you, like he, I think, is in that same exact spot. He wants yeah. it to be fruitful and friendly and uh, yeah. all yeah. of those things, which I think goes back to what we talked about you know, an hour ago about just yeah. the way we all relate to each other. Right, but I mean, he'll confidently say things like, you know, atheists aren't really atheists. I mean, like, a, there's a real atheist is a psychopath who murders people. I mean, so there, those people have existed, but someone like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, or I mean, he said this directly to Matt Dillahunty in this case, uh, they're not, they only think they're atheists, not really atheists. They have a God and that's functioning in their life and they're just not acknowledging it, right? Um, you know, they're, and again, it comes, it comes back to this historical claim that we all grew up in the West. We're all, we all just got our ethics and our, our theology without ever naming it, we got it in the water, right? And um, so any sense you have of what is good and worth doing, uh, any sense you have of value, just the reason why it would be bad to murder somebody, uh, the, the reason why you don't have to think that through from first principles every day, uh, and, you, and you can just navigate this social space with other people in the West, it's because you are just fundamentally dependent on these stories, this tradition, right, and this this God. And he's very, you know, I, I don't know what the steel man interpretation of, of what he's actually doing is here, but to my eye, he's very you know, either evasive or, or non-committal about what he means by God. But he's, he, he's, however he's using the word, he's not making a clear claim about what he believes. He'll often say, you know, it would take me, you know, 40 hours to answer that, or I wrote a 600-page book on that, and I can't, it's like, like he, he, will de he will decline to answer a fairly straightforward question about what he believes about Jesus or about God or Right, so maybe you guys will get somewhere on that. He yeah. doesn't, I, I don't think, I, I think I could probably count on one hand how many times he's actually mentioned God specifically in the, in the course right. of all this, because the stories and the ma what he would say are the maps of meaning, I think, yeah. are much more important to him than the, if, to agree on the exact definition of God. Yeah. But, the, but the claim, for instance, that I am in a way mm -hmm. that I fundamentally don't understand, but he does, mm -hmm. that I am captive of the Judeo-Christian tradition, mm -hmm. right? that my ethics is born of it, and that my notion of ultimate value is somehow anchored to Jesus, right? Uh, I mean, that is just so preposterous as to be unarguable, right? <laughs> this is, and yet, Shapiro would take a similar argument, just not yeah. related to Jesus, though. He, I think he would say something similar, well, right? Well, because, like, because my mother was Jewish, presumably he would think I'm you know, Jewish rather than Judeo-Christian, right? right. But, or but, that he would say that your enlightenment values, I mean, I think when I've done this with him, he right. would say, if I say, well, all the goodness in me, the things that I believe in, the moral principles that I believe in are, are really enlightenment values, he would say, well, you really have to dial it back to where all of this came from before that, the, the sort of yeah. base yeah. line I mean, before all But that. it's a fallacy, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's the gen genetic fallacy, it's just the, the idea that even if it were true that these things came 
from a certain tradition historically. That's not an argument either that they're good or, right. or that, they're, that that's the only place they could have come from, right? Or that the, the Hindus don't have them mm-hmm. for, for different reasons, right? And incompatible reasons. Um, but it's just, it is just not true that my ethics are the result of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, first of all, it's not even true that the, the, the most famous Judeo-Christian ethics are, originate with the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, the golden rule predates Christianity, <laughs> right? right? Uh, I mean, monkeys have it. Uh, monkeys have a, 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 a proto-version of the golden mm-hmm. rule, right? In that they have some right, expectation they're not just of fairness. each other all right. the time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they do. They clearly have a, some expectation of reciprocity and fairness. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, it's just it's just not a it's not a valid claim. And even if it were, it's not proving the point he thinks he's proving with it. Right. So, it's. Um, but these are the. I mean, these are like points of confusion yeah. that I think we could get behind, get past in five minutes. But it's also possible that he's going to dig in for two hours on this, and then we'll have three more events to do, and I'm not sure what the hell's going to happen. So, um, but I, I, mean, I really hope to make progress with him, because I, again, I think, uh, I think what he's doing is very interesting on, uh, on other fronts, and what he's exposed is a, a real need, a real hunger for a meaning-based conversation about, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, how do you get your life straight in, a, you know, in the 21st century? Um, and I, I, mean, I mean, clearly, clearly, there's a hunger for wisdom that the secular community has not been answering in any kind of reliable way. And so, when I hear from people who are saying, "Well, you know, I'm an, I've been an atheist, but you know, I'm, what I'm hearing from Peterson is, you know, really causing me to get my life together," uh, that just tells me that. I mean, it's no surprise. I've said this about atheism ever right. since you I was talking about atheism. Yeah. Atheism is not a philosophy. It's, atheism is nothing. Mm-hmm. Atheism is just a denial of the, the false certainties of religious people. Mm-hmm. It's like, no there's, no, there's no good reason to believe in Poseidon, and there's no good reason to believe in Yahweh. That's atheism, yeah. right? So atheism doesn't give you anything that makes you live a meaningful life. And that's not, but the thing is, uh, contra Peterson, that's not a knock on atheism. That's all in the atheism. Atheism is just not being convinced by the, the, bad, relig- the bad evidence and arguments put forward by religious people. Mm-hmm. It leaves just a space for better conversations that you may or may not have. You may or may not discover. You may or may not fall in love with science and, and a, a rational approach to, to the contemplative life. I mean, so as a, in a weird way, as someone that wants to connect atheism to spirituality, the failure of whatever the atheist movement before you was, in a weird way, is, is kind of good because you, you want to lead atheism to a future, right? Like, well, I've, I'm completely unconcerned I, by atheism. I'm, I'm concerned about the future, right? right? right, right, but right. It's, it's like, you know, but the, again, the, the place where Peterson and I will, will have disagreed and will disagree is, I, mean, I, I think he, I don't think he understands atheism or I've never heard him say anything that, that is an accurate portrayal of, of what it's like to be, you know, this sort of atheist, or, mm-hmm. or you know, and, and certainly many atheists I know. Um, and he also doesn't seem to understand that there are real alternatives to religious provincialism and tra- traditionalism, uh, and even this, you know, Jungian, Joseph Campbellian style, you know, an, uh, fascination with myth, 
that gets you what everyone says they want out of life, right? Like you don't have to, it's, it, I, I'm, I, I'm not discounting the, the, the power of, of story. Yeah. It's, it's like that, that's another method for sort of reframing your experience. Yes, you, but, you, but, the, but the truth is you can do that with stories that you know to be bullshit. Like you, you can do that with Batman. Well, I'm telling you. I mean, yeah. I know Star Wars right. isn't a true story, no, but it has. The, no, but I mean, but, but you could decide. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up each morning, and think of myself as Luke Skywalker. <laughs> like, you know, you're not Luke Skywalker. Well. You know, Luke Skywalker was invented by someone who, in your lifetime, right? So there's no so deep thing going back to our DNA, right? This is it's just Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. and you can do it. And and perhaps you know. Perhaps Jordan would want to say, well, no, Luke Skywalker does go back to the DNA because Joseph Campbell was really in touch with these ancient myths, and it was Joseph Campbell who gave George Lucas all of his you know, story structure. Okay, leave it aside. You could do it with that. You pick the most preposterous character you want that could still conceivably be inspiring, you know, mm-hmm. Spider-Man, right? Um, you could get up tomorrow and say, I'm, you know, I'm just going to view each situation of the day that I encounter through the lens of what would Spider-Man do? You know, what, how would Spider-Man act here? How, I'm walking into a Starbucks, right? I feel sort of vaguely neurotic, right? I'm about to meet the barista and I'm like, you know, having trouble making eye contact, right? I'm, I'm, that, I'm the same neurotic person I was yesterday. But how would Spider-Man do this, <laughs> right? Like, and how would, how would, you know, if I knew that I could just to take down everyone in this place if I wanted to, and I could you know, shoot a web and fly over a building, right? If I knew that about myself, how would I navigate each subsequent moment here? That, the, truth, the truth of the matter is that changes your psychology. You can do it with total fictitious bullshit, right? It's a trick. It's a, it's a, it's a mind hack, right? That's the same game, right? It doesn't require, and, and, and it doesn't require Jung to be right about the collective unconscious. Now you could say, well, it only works if there really is something at the, you know, the substrate layer that is ancient and and spooky. Um, that that's an, an empirical claim that you know may be unfalsifiable or or maybe worth debating. But the reality is, is that stories have power, even if you you and some stories have more power than others, right? And we can talk about you know how why, what makes a, a, a certain story more compelling or structured in a way that, that's more compelling. But the reality is that, that the mind is, is plastic to a remarkable degree, and our, our persistence in having the same mediocre, mediocre experience we had yesterday is, is a kind of habit. Mm-hmm. And it, you can create other habits that are more inspiring and more, more useful. And yes, it is totally possible to use some traditional framework to do that, or some weird cultic framework. I mean, someone can invent a new, you know, a new operating system and, you know, and call it Scientology or call it uh, whatever and uh, gather acolytes uh, under that, in that context. And even the, and this is how weird our circumstance is. You can have a, a malicious fraud doing that. Someone like L. Ron Hubbard, who's mm-hmm. just clearly a con man, right? Um, and people can derive genuine benefit from it. It's not like every Scientologist is wrong about the benefit they got from Scientology. It's, uh, clearly they're not, right? It wouldn't, wouldn't persist to the degree that it has if, right. if everyone's just having a bad time and seeing no benefit ever, 
right? It's not. It's not. It, w- it would be over in a day. Well, they're sweating all all that yeah, goo right. or whatever yeah. they're doing in in the sauna. So all right. So then that I think maybe we can wrap it with that. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I'm not here to litigate, obviously, on on behalf of Jordan. I I thought if you could just get some of these ideas. I'm sure we'll we'll get into it. What's the date of the first one? Um, People would have to check my website. Is it July or is it this month? uh, No, the first, it's the end of this month in Vancouver. We've got two shows. Right. The 23rd and 4th, I think. Yeah. And then we've got Dublin and London in July, the middle of July. The 14th, I think, is Dublin, and the 16th is London. Could okay. have a, could be a day off there. Well, I have him back so. in here on the 29th, so that'll be right in between the two, so maybe that'll be an interesting spot oh, cool. to yeah. kind of refresh some debrief. of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so then my, my final thing on this, and then, and then we can wrap, would be, so what does it matter at the end of the day? Let's say, <clears throat> let's say everything you've said here is true, and, and a certain amount of people watching this can can start going down that road and finding truth that allows them to live as presently and honestly and, and fulfillingly as possible. Mm. And let's say for the amount of people that are showing up to Jordan's events, they hear what he's saying and feel that it allows them to do that exact same thing. Whether you believe right. that that's skimming off the top or not fully actualizing itself, but, but they ultimately live a good life that is, you know, that the life that's coming from what you're prescribing to what Jordan's prescribing ultimately both become comparably moral, decent, good lives. Mm. At the end of the day, then, does it matter? Well, I think having a coherent idea about truth matters. And, and so this is a sticking point that Jordan and I hit in our first podcast. Yeah. And uh, I see it operating in a lot of what he's saying. And so that, that, I think, should be ironed out. And I think it can be ironed out, and you can still be totally enamored of the usefulness of myth. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you can still, like, almost nothing else shifts in what he's doing, and you can still acknowledge that there's a difference between this is what Brett Weinstein, I think, usefully dubbed metaphorical truth mm-hmm. and literal truth. And it's only by the light of literal truth that you can even make that distinction, right? Like, like clearly we need th- those two categories. And we need to be able to say that certain things are not literally true, but they're useful, right? And certain things are uh, just starkly false. I mean, they don't even have, they have no truth to them. I mean, someone could just be fundamentally mistaken about reality, and that could be, there's certain circumstances under, there's circumstances under which that could be useful, right? So it's like, 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 to make those distinctions is the only way to preserve a notion of truth that gets you something like a legitimate science and mm-hmm. a legitimate error correcting mechanism where it really matters that your beliefs both be internally consistent, your belief system be internally consistent and map on to reality in some way that is, uh, you know, if they were false, you would be unlikely to believe what you believe. I mean, the, the problem is what people are getting, and this is you know, traditionally what religion has been and what, what dogmatism always gives you. I mean, dogmatism is the state of no longer interacting with reality in a way that would that would error correct your beliefs. Like, I'm going to believe this thing that I believed yesterday, no matter what you tell me, no matter what you show me, no matter what happens in human history, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Whatever, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's religion, traditionally speaking, and that is precisely the state in which the human mind 
and human communities can't error correct and make intellectual progress. So clearly that's not, that part is not worth preserving. Uh, and to some degree, I perceive Jordan as trying to have it both ways, and he'll, he'll, he'll endorse science in, in, in you know, various ways, but he will also endorse, I mean, he won't call it dogmatism, but I'm perceiving it to be dogmatism, mm-hmm. and so I mean, that's something that I w- w- certainly hope that we can flesh out and yeah. converge on. So. It's good that you guys are doing four of these, because yeah, each, no, each one is going to sort of be like a discovery <clears throat> session until... Yeah. Until you can get enough of an agreement on that sort of base level stuff. And, and yeah, you may end up just lost in the weeds on it. Uh, well, we have, we, unlike my podcast, we have a moderator, really in all four times. Yeah. Oh, no, Douglas is doing yeah, some of them. Brett Weinstein is, is actually a moderator for yeah. Vancouver. So he knows his job, and, and I think he'll be great at it. Uh, Douglas Murray is joining us in London and Dublin, and he, he is not a moderator, but I think just, just having Douglas there will, will keep us from... From missing each other totally. I mean, Douglas Having a is British so smart. accent yeah. alone yeah. is a very calming effect on yeah. all this. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I don't think we should go two years again before no. we uh, before no. we do no. this again. And, well, we have. Uh, we should also say we're, we have a conference coming up in oh. in New York in in November, which you are are emceeing. Yeah. And um, this is actually this is. This is very cool. This is sort of an idea you've been bouncing around for a while. Yeah, so why yeah. yeah. Why don't you tell everybody? Because this is a rather than avoid controversial topics for this. This conference, we decided to just just ram <laughs> toward the, the the most provocative, and so we have a, a session on Me Too. Uh, we, I think it's titled "Has Me Too Gone Too Far?" and it's, it's going to be a panel of uh, women, all women journalists. I think that's true to say, uh, and fantastic people like Masha Gessen and uh, Barry Weiss and uh, Katie Royfe. Um, Rebecca Traster, I don't think can make it, but so, but it, it, the we're still building it out, but it's it's it will be the full spectrum of yes, it's gone too far to hasn't gone far enough, mm-hmm. right? So it, it should be a very interesting conversation. Uh, there's a panel on race with Glenn Lowry, who yeah. you know is is fantastic, and I'm pretty sure Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to do it, and so oh, and Ta-Nehisi really? is just as far to to the yeah. you know the. Uh, extreme racialist side of this uh, as uh, possible. So, so and you, then, just, and, you just wanted to thrust me in the middle of this thing and have yeah, at it, yeah, and yeah. see what happens. Um, and we always will have to talk about how that stuff gets moderated. But um, and then it's got uh, Coleman Hughes, this, yeah. this uh, young, I mean, crazy He's this, uh, un- undergraduate who's yeah. writing these these pieces in Quillette. Uh, to give you a sense of just how weird the the, the left is. So so Coleman Hughes has written these these pieces on race and. Quillette, he's this African-American undergraduate at Columbia, writing these essays that, that you know, so many of us have found uh, uh, just, just one, incredibly well-written, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just, he does not have any of the, the affectations of someone who's overwriting at yeah. his age, which is just ama- it's amazingly just rare. And yeah. clean, yeah. And just so clear-headed, right? Yeah. And, and uh, so I retweeted one of his essays saying, like, you know, congratulations, Coleman, uh, and I just decided to check my ad mentions oh just, 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 be, not because, yeah, just, just to take the temperature of the situation. And this is more evidence of my racism that I'm, <laughs> that I'm favorably retweeting. It's like, like this, this Uncle Tom, you know, as you'd expect. Uh, so uh, it's amazing. But anyway, that again will be a panel that spans the full range of, of opinion on, on, these topic, on this topic of race. So the question is, can we get beyond race? And then there's a panel on Islam that will have... 
uh, Majid and Ayan, who you know are all stars on the you know I would argue the perfectly sane side of this conversation, <laughs> but it will also have Fareed Zakaria and and Shadi Hamid, who you know I view it as a kind of intervention on those guys because like they're to my ear they've just been making the wrong noises on this, and I, I did I've done podcasts with yeah, both of them, both. but me being a white guy, non-Muslim, you know, who didn't grow up in the culture, uh, there's, there's, there's certain moves not open to me for, you know, the, the kind of audience that will be persuaded by, you know, someone like Farid or Shadi saying, you don't understand the Muslim experience or whatever it is. So obviously they can't do that talking to Ayan and, and Majid um, or Sarah Hader. And so all of those people will be on, on the panel. And that, that should be fascinating. Uh, and then finally, there's a panel that Farid is actually going to moderate, which is, the uh, truth is, I'm on it. I don't know who else is going to be on I think it's going to be Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein and a few other people, and it'll just be talking about rationality and you know, is reason sacred is the title of that panel. And you're doing uh, a meditation oh, session, too. Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to do a meditation workshop in that. So it's, a, it's like a 10-hour day, but... Uh, it should, I think after, be good. after all this moderation, I'm going to need a little meditation. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I will, I will be to come by for that and yeah. center for that one. Okay. All right. Well, okay. it's always a pleasure, my friend. Likewise. And don't follow him on Twitter because there's nothing I won't be there. good happening yeah. there. But you can uh, check out the Waking Up podcast at samharris.org.